Welcome in to the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. I had the pleasure of reading a very interesting book this past weekend, folks. I want to uh, tell you a little bit about it. We'll get into it here in just a second. It is called Monsters on the Loose, the true story of three unsolved murders in Prohibition-era San Diego. You know, sometimes we get the pleasure of being able to time travel a little bit on this program and be able to jump into different eras. And there are times where books fail us a little bit on that. I mean, they get us there. And they, they set the scene, and sometimes we want to get to the heart of the story and find out about the actual crime. And sometimes those books, like I say, they fail us in that they don't set the scene properly. They don't give us the feel. They give us a little taste, but we really don't get that scene set properly. My guest today is author Richard L. Carrico, and he does set that scene. He does it brilliantly. In fact, I think he does it so brilliantly, he he kind of stuns you a little bit with some of the facts he throws out there and gets you so in the scene that you almost want more. You almost want to know more about what goes on with these particular characters and the people around these characters. But he does a wonderful job of following the three unfortunate victims in this book. There are three of them that he follows. In going down the generations afterwards, you even get a little bit of a follow-up afterwards in this book. And I'll explain a little bit as we go along. The book, folks, is, like I said, Monsters on the Loose, the true story of three unsolved murders in Prohibition-era San Diego. Let me tell you a little bit about Richard. We'll bring him in. We'll talk all about this particular book. Uh, Richard L. Carrico is an award-winning archaeologist, historian, and university instructor based in San Diego, California. With an emphasis on nonfiction, over three decades, he has published articles in professional and academic journals, authored four books and written chapters and three others. His interests span from true crime to Spanish and colonial history. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome to True Crime Tuesday, Richard Carrico. Hi, Richard. How are you? Hi, Tim. I'm really well. Thank you. And beautiful introduction. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed this book. And I'll tell you, I told you a little bit off air, the reason being, and, and let me just set this up for the listeners. One of the things that absolutely grabs me, and it, it, I don't know why I'm stuck on this fact, but it, you bring up in the book uh, different things. Uh, during this time in 1931 is we're going through these three murders, and all three of these murders happen around 1931 or in 1931, correct? Yes, in the first uh, four months of the year, yeah. Okay. Uh, in that time frame, Thomas Edison is still alive or, or is in the process of expiring. Yes. Yeah. And growing up, he was one of my heroes and I knew he died in 1931. And so as I was reading through newspaper accounts for my research, he's sick. And I was kind of following him simultaneously as I was following the investigation of these murders. And then later he dies. But yeah, he was still alive. And it was headlines that he was sick. That, which is crazy. And th there's there's other things that that are going on economically. And, and you've got uh, Franklin Roosevelt at the time is is a governor, not not the president, but it was Hoover who was the president at the time, correct? Yes. Okay. Until 1932, yeah. And you're getting the feel yeah. feel of the country as to how they actually feel about Hoover, which is is crazy. I mean, it, it, to to actually get the feel of how people feel about the president, how they feel about Roosevelt, how and and then this hits me right between the eyes because we think of. 
$15,000 today, which let's face it, if you're making $15,000 today, you are absolute poverty level. You are not, you don't have a, <laughs> pardon the language here, Richard, you don't have a pot to piss in, right? Yep, absolutely. All right. $15,000 in 1931 is like having $2 million today. Yes. Yeah. And par- partially that's inflation, you know, over the, right. it's compounded. It's reversed. Like you put money in a bank and you get it compounded, but it, inflation also compounds because things keep growing. So when you find out that, okay, a loaf of bread is a dime, you go, oh man, I wish that was the case today. But when you multiply that out, it turns out to be a dollar twenty-five or two dollars a loaf in today's dollars, and that's part of what I, I wanted to to uh, elicit for the reader is when I throw these numbers out, or you could buy a house for whatever you know, fifteen thousand or fifteen hundred actually. So that as you're reading it, you get a sense of the time, and it's the depression. You know, the mm-hmm. depression's about two years in, a year and a half in, and it it affected everybody in America. One of the things you point out in the book, which is important to remember is the news media at this point is different. It's very different. They are hand in hand lockstep with the police department and the police department at this time really does have a lot of corruption in it. So you, you, you have to be wary of the reports you're getting from the courts, from the police and you kind of have to do your own digging. How difficult was it to do the digging behind these three cases? Well, it, it was digging and the, the beauty today of internet. When I started this, actually, typic- I really started the book about seven years ago, but I actually really started it about 15 years ago when newspapers weren't online yet, the old newspapers. So over time, it gave me the ability to compare the Los Angeles Times with the San Diego Union and the San Diego Tribune. And what I noticed was no big surprise, but the coverage would be different. They're slant a little bit, mm-hmm. but clearly the local newspapers, as soon as a body was found or, or there was any suggestion of a crime, even a shootout going on, the press was right there and they weren't kept behind some yellow tape. And they actually became part of the story because they were so close with the cops. And since I grew up in San Diego, I remember bar downtown uh, that I used to go to and deliver newspapers to. And at that bar on a given Sunday morning would be newspaper reporters and cops sitting there talking, smoking their cigars, right? And talking about cases off, you know, completely open, not off the record, just, yeah. So that was really interesting and and male dominated world, right? Very misogynistic. So the reporters were male, the cops were all male. And and sometimes the cops would join the reporters and help write the article even. So, yeah, very different. <laughs> Richard, I can't tell you how crazy that is. Having worked in in a newsroom, how combative it is to to have to go to. I mean, even just making calls from a newsroom or going into an actual police department or sheriff's department and trying to get a spokesperson to give you a word about any ongoing case is like pulling teeth now. It is. In fact, that's part of the book that is still ongoing, even though the book's out or about to be out, is that the sheriff's department, even though I did what's called a California Public Records Act, which is the same as the Freedom of Information Act Mm -hmm. request, they refused to give me anything on two of the cases that they were involved in because they said they're, they're still open cases. To which I said, excuse me, this is 1931. Yeah. Everyone's dead in the perp, right? You're not going to go out now and, and resolve this. 
And they said, well, they're not active cases, but they're still open. So you're right. I'm just trying to write a book. I'm not even a newspaper reporter trying to get an article out, right? Right. And finally, one young lieutenant lady, uh, Lisa, did give me a little bit of information, but it was like pulling teeth. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and I mean, when they hold on to it, they hold on to it. You know, you're just not going to pry it out of them. It, it it's a different era, a different age. So when, when you read some of the stuff in this book, it's shocking. It, especially if you've been on that side of it. Uh, it's, I mean, to, I think to the general layman, for lack of a better term, to the general reader, when they read this, it may not seem so shocking. I mean, we've seen stuff like this in, you know, in Hollywood, when you, you see the, the, the newspaper guy with the fedora and the, the little press uh, you know, a little press thing in his hat, go up to the cop and, hey, you got any scoop for me? And you just assume yeah. that that's the way it is now, but it isn't. I mean, it really isn't. No. Um, and, and some of the things that you may read in this, in this book may, may or may not surprise you. I don't know. But to me, it's absolutely shocking that, that uh, when you talk about the layers of corruption and, and in this too, there is a there's a police chief that is on the way out. He's about to retire. And is it safe to say, Richard, that the San Diego Police Department isn't great about solving murders? They they don't have a, a great record. Well, certainly not back then. Certainly not back then. And there's a lot of reasons for that. San Diego is such an interesting town because I travel a lot doing archaeology, and the view of San Diego is. Palm trees, the ocean, manana attitude, lay back, very cool, mm-hmm. probably not much crime, blah, blah, blah. And while some of that is true, there's a whole underbelly because we are near the border. There is There are drug issues going on. There's obviously fentanyl I'm talking about today. And back there and then, during Prohibition in particular, because so much alcohol was coming across the border from Mexico, there was that whole import going on. And then Canadian alcohol was coming down the coast and being offloaded in San Diego. So there was a lot of easy money, just like there is today. It's easy to be corrupted by that. And you also had a police department. It's really funny when you look into it, both they and let's say the coroner had no professional training because that's not how 1931 was. You just wanted to be a sheriff or a cop and you applied. And some of those men, just like back in the days of Wyatt Earp, went back and forth between that line between being a criminal and a cop, right? As a, as a Rolling Stone song says. Yeah. And and therefore, you know, a couple of times they were sued. The police department was sued by people who were beaten up or interrogated or locked in a room and you know, all those things. So, yeah, that, that was a subtext of it. So how valid could any arrest be or any court and that person you're talking about went out of his way to get that particular suspect tried in a court of law. Yeah. And there are incidents that that astound you as well. There's 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 cops that will turn a blind eye to sex workers or turn a blind eye to a bathtub gin uh, salesperson or, or or manufacturer. That's a, that's the word I'm looking for. Um and in one in one respect or in the other, they'll go after someone uh, that that maybe you would think they wouldn't go after because there's a political agenda attached. 
uh, it doesn't seem like they have one set agenda or one set, you know, there's, it's really not justice for all here. It's, it's kind of justice for now. Is that safe to say? Very much so. And in, in the case of the person that they took to trial uh, for the stabbing death, by then, the other there were, there were at that time there were six unsolved murders going on, and the public was getting very restless, and they were locking their doors, which was unheard of in San Diego in 1931. And so, it's the classic round up the usual suspects. We got to get somebody, and we got to get to the press and tell them about it that we've nabbed this guy and we're putting him on trial. And and there's a political side because of a mayor and a police chief. So there's that whole side. There's the PR side of it that they were L.A. and San Diego, Los Angeles and San Diego. I've always had this interesting relationship. So the L.A. Times and the papers up in Los Angeles went out of their way to cast dispersions on San Diego. They couldn't catch a criminal if they had to. Blah, blah, blah. Or if this were L.A., we'd have it solved right now, which, of course, wasn't true. Right. They were even more corrupt. I told L.I. Confidential. I know about that. Right. Yeah. Right. But, right. Yeah. That whole thing was going on right then. And that's part of what made me want to write the book, frankly, Tim, is because it wasn't just about three murders that were unsolved at the time. It's all that stuff that was going on. So I'm, and I'm glad you think that that came through in the book, because that's what I wanted. Very much so. And, and again, I, I tip my hat to you because it, it uh, there's such a rich background to the entire the entire book it's not just focusing on the unfortunate three i should say girl and women so it's not three but it's the girl and women who were who were murdered here uh in in the book uh there are characters surrounding the book that that really fill out this entire story and really it's a rich tapestry of of san diego that that you look at and you go, wow, th- this, this city really had an interesting history that, that uh, it wasn't just a sleepy little town there that in, in, in California in 1931. It, it had some interesting things going on that, that needed to be delved into that, that people really should know about. Um, speaking of interesting little things that people should know about, we, we, let's, let's start to talk about these these unfortunate uh, girls, women um, that that unfortunately lost their lives due to, we could say neglect. Neglect is a good way of putting it. Uh, um, I hate the phrase. It was just that time. It was it was that time in history, or or you know that was just the way things were then. That's that's a terrible phrase, Richard. It's that's not a that's not an excuse for neglect. That's not an excuse for not looking after your own. Don't you think so? I do. I do. And America and probably California more than in some areas was going through a big change right then, partially because of the depression, but the music was changing, the morals were changing, the mores were changing, women were starting to smoke cigarettes. You know, they weren't into wearing slacks yet, but the automobile, I think I had a quote in there from the University of Illinois that banned the automobile on campus because of all the heavy petting that was going on in the back seat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would have been possible 10 years before or to the older sisters or mothers of that particular, let's say those young women mm-hmm. involved. So everything was in tr- transition. The music was going from old waltzes and and even big band stuff a little bit to more of, of rowdy louder music and this was true in country music too and 
And so it's there is sort of a neglect thing in that when you look back on it, it was spinning out of control to a lot of people. Parents were, were helpless because their daughters and sons were going out in automobiles in a time when there was a prohibition and yet they were drinking and they could get away from their neighborhood. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's going on. It was a pretty free time for a lot of children because the dads had to work sometimes 12 hours a day to put bread on the table. And the mother stayed home and made clothes and, and sewed things and cooked constantly and cleaning. And so the little kids, I think, had a lot more, quote, freedom. And that freedom can lead to murder. It can lead to kidnapping. It can lead to falling into a culvert, right, and drowning. Right. Yeah. So that, Tim, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. You brought up the music of the time. I'm going to take a little jaunt to the left here and just bring up an interesting point. And I'm not meaning to slam the state of Wisconsin here at all. But when I was doing radio in Wisconsin at the small station I was working at, the six o'clock hour was was polkas and waltzes. And you bring up in the when you're bringing up music in the in the book, you bring up that uh, the rowdier music was coming into fashion in 1931. It was being um, it was being surpassed by or big band music was being surpassed by that music uh, by the rowdier jazz music, uh, right. but it was polkas and waltzes that was taken over by big band, right? So that would have put it <laughs> right. back to what the nineteen tens, nineteen hundreds. So that would mean yeah. that Wisconsin was stuck in the nineteen hundreds back when I was in nineteen ninety when I was back in Wisconsin spinning. Polkas and waltzes at six o'clock at night. I uh, I just find that interesting. I don't know. So they were 90, yeah. 90 years behind the times, um, <laughs> and they loved it. I would get I would get the, the phone banks would light up at six o'clock yeah. at night wanting their polkas and waltzes. So they were only ninety years behind Richard. That was all. <laughs> um, yeah, it was. So when I read that, I got the biggest belly laugh ever. Thinking Wisconsin's ninety years behind the times. At least then, yeah. in 1990, I, I suppose they still wanted it at 6 o'clock in 2023. Who knows? <laughs> um, but I, I digress. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I always find that, it, and I get that, that there, at that time, now imagine this, Richard. At that time, there's still a mother in the house looking after children. And in 2023, right. who's looking after the children? Because both parents are out of the house. Both parents are working and families are struggling to to make ends meet. Um, and you've got daycare, babysitters, latchkey kids. Uh, you know, you've got you've got just anybody. Video games are babysitting kids. Uh, so, you know, I mean, and, and we've got missing kids worse than ever before. We and, do. and we come around to Virginia Brooks who's the subject, the first subject of the book. And is it safe to say this is unusual for San Diego to have a kid going missing? It, it was unusual. Um, you had runaways and they were usually found. I mean, just like today, when there's a missing person for a child, it's assumed oftentimes by police departments, well, they ran away and they'll show up. And that was the case back then. In fact, that's what they told the family, the police at first. Oh, she probably just ran away. And and it was uncommon. There were a couple of other cases of kids falling into the bay and drowning while fishing or whatever. But actually to be walking back when kids walked to school, right, almost a mile to her school 
she had done that every school day for the last three years that they'd moved into San Diego. And occasionally, completely different time, occasionally neighbors would pick her up and drive her the almost mile and pick up another little friend on the way. It was 1931 San Diego. Mm-hmm. Or apparently she would occasionally even take a ride with a stranger, but someone whose car she had seen before while walking. And so for a child to go missing walking to school was virtually unheard of at that time at that time period and that's why it actually made headlines young girl disappears off the streets of san diego never happens never happens so it it was a big deal in virginia is how old 11 uh no she was eight or nine. Oh, eight or nine that's right eight or nine eight or nine yeah yeah and yeah. for her to walk a mile now keep in mind most adults are walking what three four miles around san diego yeah so a yeah. mile really isn't a, a far distance right no, not at all. Not at all. And later, she probably would have gotten a bicycle. It, it, maybe her, her older brother did have a bicycle, a Schwinn, mm-hmm. that he would ride, you know, and pass her up on the way, which he did, and waved at her on the way. So people would walk, even, you know, even when I was growing up in the in the late 50s, early 60s, walking for me to walk to school three miles or so was not unheard of. Today, that would be completely unheard of in most communities in San Diego, not all. In some of the more marginalized, they're still doing that. But, you know, everybody has a soccer mom who drives them or there's a school bus or whatever. So, yeah, that would not have been I mean, that was not ever even brought up as being unusual in the newspaper. Of course, she walks to school. It's the depression. Her dad goes to work early in the morning as a truck driver and she walks to school. Of course. How can this happen? How can this happen? Yeah. Right. The thing that's the most shocking in all this, and you mentioned it, is that along the way someone would just pick her up and take her you know which is looked at as a neighborly thing it's just hey you know what there's little virginia she needs a ride let's pick her up and take her you know not not a big deal yeah there was there was a fellow who lived down the street or back in the rural area and he was a real estate agent and he apparently would see her some mornings especially if it was rainy or cold and he'd pick her up and just and just had a goodwill didn't even know the parents didn't live in the same neighborhood, but close enough. Mm-hmm. So that was how it was in 1931. And apparently some bad person took advantage of that. And yeah. Virginia had a little friend who was her best friend, and she would stop and, and yes. pick her little, up on the uh, way, and uh, they would a, walk. A Hispanic girl. Yeah, yep. yeah. And, 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 I, and I went as part of the research for this. I mean, I knew that neighborhood really well mm-hmm. because I grew up very close to there. And I knew where the Euclid school was. And I had friends when I was in elementary school who went to Euclid school. But as part of this, I actually went out and parked my car where her house would have been because it's all changed now. And I walked it to get a sense of it. And some of the stores were still there because I have aerial photographs from the 1920. And I could see what buildings were there and all of that. And so I walked to the point that she would have met her friend, Lucy. And then from there, they would have walked on. And so that gave me a, a good sense and a feel. And I looked at the canyons because part of the talk at the time, you know, San Diego is riddled with these canyons. We have mesa tops and then very deep canyons. And so I was looking for, you know, why did the police think maybe she'd gone down in the canyon and played and something went on down there? So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a two stories going on at once about her and about. The, the girl she was supposed to meet, there were some aspersions cast on her 
Wow. That was all part of the story. And how long did yeah. Lucy wait that day for, for, for Virginia? She only waited about 10 minutes, 50, uh, maybe 10 minutes, because they typically ran almost a little bit late. Okay. Because from that point, it was still another 15 or so minutes to the school. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so she goes missing, and and they – how do they know she's missing at this point? Is it later that day that they they she doesn't show up for school and it was Valentine's Day, right? Or around Valentine's Day that they were celebrating? It was about two or three days before Valentine's Day. Yeah, two or three days before Valentine's Day. And she, when she didn't show up at school, you know, today I suppose they might call your parents or send you a text or something like that. But they just assumed, apparently, the teacher assumed that she was just sick. For, but her brothers then told one of the teachers something to the effect of, oh, no, she was, she was coming. So at that point, uh, they did not have a phone. The Brooks family did not have a phone. Mm -hmm. But still, maybe something, she got sick and went home. So it wasn't until that evening when she should have been home or that afternoon. A lot of times she stopped off on the way back, again, walking to, at the public library because she was loved to read books. Mm -hmm. And so the mom, until about 3.30 or 4, wasn't concerned. Okay. And then at 4, she was very concerned. And then when the dad came home at about 6-ish, the dad then went to a neighbor and called the police department. And back then, East San Diego was its own city and had its own little police department. And so he called the sheriff and, or the police and said, I think my daughter's gone missing. That's why it was in the morning, the very first morning paper. It was already in the press because the cops and the press had already talked about it. Yeah. At this point, uh, there's... There's quite a bit of, of um, activity as far as trying to find little Virginia. Eventually, she's, they, they find her body. Yeah. And it's, it's, quite, it's quite alarming how they find her body. Do you want to tell people how they found it? Yeah. The, in, the, in the roughly two months, almost to the day, between her gone, going missing and being found there were all this conjecture she'd been taken into into mexico she was taken to texas she she was seen in los angeles she was all over the place and the newspapers generally kept the story going because it was a child and it had a lot of interest and it probably sold some newspapers and it was kind of yellow journalism at the time anyhow um and then a sheep herder about six miles to the north up on a very deserted area near an, old, an abandoned military base, which is now Miramar Airfield. But uh, a sheep herder and his dog, sometimes called Blackie and sometimes called Shep in the newspapers. I, I don't know. Uh, the dog alerted uh, its owner. He was out shooting at tin cans, as people did back then in the middle of nowhere. And the dog alerted on a gunny sack a burlap sack and mm -hmm. when the fellow went over uh, Moses went over and looked at it he then the story varies and this is part of the story at first story he says he didn't open it up hardly at all but realized it was something human the other part of the story that he's told later is he actually cut it open with a knife and saw it and her body was so badly decomposed but even then only part of it which led the investigators to believe that part of her had been buried and the other part exposed to the elements and to bugs and maggots and flies and larvae and all that kind of stuff. So 
he ran, according to the, the gentleman who found him, found the child, ran about a half a mile out of what was then old 395, alerted a truck driver who drove into San Diego because there were no phones and called the sheriff's department. And, and literally, as, as we mentioned earlier, in the newspaper articles and in the photographs that I found at the Historical Society, the newspaper reporters are standing right there with the cops when they're opening the burlap sack. Jeez. And when they carried her out to rehearse to take her to a mortuary. So they're right there, leaving footprints, you know, smoking cigarettes, dropping them on the ground and all of that. And it and that finding, that discovery of her, then then the headlines are big again. They're back to banner headlines. And because of the, her state of decomposition, the newspapers played it up as if she'd been gutted, as if she'd been viscerated. And then that leads to a whole, it must have been a cult. It must have been a monster, thus monsters on the loose, right? It must have been a monster out there. Yep. And then, then the investigation switches from missing girl to murdered girl found six miles away from her house. Yeah. Yeah. I tell you what we're going to do with these stories here, Richard, because there is such rich material here. I, I We're just going to go over the cases and the finding of the bodies and, and we're going to leave the rest to, to the reader to go find the, the, uh, the, um, the rest of the story uh, because it's so good. The, the rest of it is just so good. And I don't mean in a, I don't mean in a satisfying way. I just mean that the, the story itself is just, uh, you know, these are cold cases, but there's a lot more to the story and there's a lot more rich material there to, to be read. Um, I tell you what, we're going to take a break and I'm going to tease people by saying in the break here that Richard thinks he might've solved one of these cases. When we come Absolutely. back, yeah, when we come back, we're going to talk about the other two cases here in this story. And, uh, in one of these stories, Richard might've found the, uh, the killer of one of these women. So when we come back, we'll talk about the other two involved in this book monsters on the loose the true story of three unsolved murders in prohibition era san diego richard l carico is our guest we come back more on 1931 san diego here on the best in true crime podcasting this is true crime tuesday Welcome back to the Best in True Crime Podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Our guest is Richard L. Carrico. The book is Monsters on the Loose, the true story of three unsolved murders in Prohibition-era San Diego. We have a link to it in the description of the show. Richard, I keep teasing that there are two other cases here, one of which you may have found the killer, and you've done it. I through may have, and, and as the book was actually just about to go well, not quite depressed, but let's say the second out of three edits. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually changed my mind a little bit. We'll talk about that. Oh, and okay. I've, I've narrowed it down to possibly two people, but one still stands out of my mind more than the other. And in the book, they're both they're both mentioned. So the unfortunate young lady um, was Louise Tauber. Mm-hmm. She was seventeen. Uh, going on 18, and she was described, this sort of goes back to what we were talking about, she was described as a modern girl or a modern woman. Mm -hmm. And what that meant at the time was she was more liberated, she smoked cigarettes, it's the post-flapper period, she's wearing more revealing clothing, that is to say you can see an ankle and a little bit up from that. (laughs) (laughs) Right, I know. She's staying out late, 
she's listening to what was pre bebop music. Okay. Uh, and, and, and she's a, what was called a sportswoman, which at the time meant she roller skated, she swam, she did unfeminine things. You know, she went up with an airplane pilot and flew over San Diego, uh, all, all of these things. And the newspapers made a big deal out of that, that she was a modern girl, almost implying she brought it on herself. Oh, right? No. So she worked at a dime store. Uh, she uh, was raised by a single parent, her dad, who had a, uh, a barber shop that's still there mm-hmm. on University Avenue, uh, not too far from poor Virginia's house, actually. And she had a lot of friends. Everybody said, and this was brought up in the newspapers, she dated a lot. She dated servicemen, which is somewhat unique. You know, in San Diego, what I mean by that is a lot of communities don't have military facilities near them. So that's never part of the the quotient, if you will. And she was very well liked by everybody. She loved to dance. Uh, She was described as flirtatious and uh, knew a lot of people. And uh, she went to her dime store job, a place called uh, Kresge's, Cress's that used to be here in San Diego. And then went out, smoked a couple cigarettes in the evening, talked to some people, had talked about running off to Chicago to live with her grandparents. Because, as she said, San Diego's dead. She said, someday it's just going to burn up in flames. It's a dead town. Nothing's going on here. At 17 years old. <laughs> and then the next morning, uh, uh, a Mexican fellow named uh, Tomas Martinez is taking his family on a hike, a little jaunt to go on a picnic, a Sunday morning picnic, which was pretty typical in the time period, down in a semi-isolated area of San Diego and came across across a nude young lady hanging from a tree with only her shoes and her silk stockings on and was shocked and went back and told his daughters and, and wife, don't come. He drove into the uh, sheriff's department and then they came out again with newspaper reporters and uh, and cut the girl down, and that starts the saga of of poor Louise Tauber. And what it led to at at one point was a neighbor named Herman had taken nude photographs of her when she was sixteen mm. the year before or on her birthday up in a mountain community here called Julian. And uh, he was investigated, but his wife alibied him out and said, yes, I know he has nude photographs of her. That's what he does. He takes photographs and then he paints from them. And uh, But he was with me that night up in the mountains. And when pressed about it, well, not all night. We did come back and all that. So then you might ask, well, did you go to bed? And he stayed up and had a chance to somehow pick her up because he obviously knew her. So, that, so the investigation led to all these boyfriends, all these military guys she was dating, all this stuff. The nude photographs got played up in the paper while accusatory towards him, almost accusatory towards her. Like, why would she let herself be photographed? Right. Yeah. But again, it, it was the depression and it was a way to make a little bit of money. Right. So all kinds of people were brought in. Uh, they had all these different suspects. But ultimately, at the time, the case went cold. Mr. Uh, 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 what's his name? Newby, Herman Newby, was in prison for six months for the morals charge of having nude photographs of her. Mm-hmm. While he was in prison or in jail, his wife divorced him and left town. And then when he got out, he left town 
and I think he was in his 40s, went back to Arkansas and married a 17-year-old girl um, and moved, ironically enough, and this comes out occasionally in the book, ironically enough, to my hometown where I was born in Anderson, Indiana. You know, the, the little things that, that you find out, right? Yeah. And and that's where that part of the story ended. But I kept doing research on it and without telling the Indian of the book, Herman, Herman's daughter who was by a second marriage, lives in Texas. And I won't mention her name on air, but it sure. is in the book. Yep. I wrote her a letter and I said, hey, you know, your dad lived in a neighborhood where there was a terrible murder back in 1931. I'm doing a history of the area. Uh, did he ever mention that? Because it was a pretty dramatic thing. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I agreed. He, She probably would not answer me. Mm-hmm. Or if she did, she would say, I don't know anything yep. or whatever. And she didn't. She did answer me. And the first letter opens well, Professor Carrico, you didn't mention it, but if you think my father killed that girl, he probably did. <laughs> that wow. was the opening statement. <laughs> wow. Yep. Now that's got to blow your doors off right there. Yep. And then she went, we conversed for six months between email and written letters and, and all that and, and Diane. And I appreciated her input very much. And she gave me all the reasons that he might have, that he called all women prick teasers and whores. And that he had beaten her mother and sexually abused her, the daughter. And so he moved he moved right on up to the top of the list. Oh yeah. And he stayed Yeah, and he stayed there for a long time. Just about as the book was getting its second or whatever edit, I had a short version of the book on Louise Tauber that appeared in a local newspaper, magazine newspaper called The Reader. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that article, a gentleman called me up who was in his 90s and said, hey, I, I really need to talk to you. I knew, I knew somebody really well that you mentioned in that story. And I'm doing the math on it. And I'm thinking 92, he couldn't have known anybody really that's in the story. And, and I'll just kind of cut to it without telling the ending entirely. When he was 17, this fellow named Tom, when he was 17, he had a flight instructor who was in his 30s. Cyril Smith and that flight instructor had grown up in San Diego. And one day when they were driving back from gliders at La Jolla or somewhere, they took this old back road and pulled off into this oak grove and they got out and Cyril pointed to an oak tree and said, back in 1931, a girl I was dating was found hanged from that tree and then goes into this whole story about it and you know how beautiful she was and and that he'd had sex with her and all of this kind of stuff and of course the 17 year old's eyes are growing big and he's tintillated by this story and then cyril smith the 35 year old pilot who did in fact know her and flew her around and was on the suspects list at the time 1931 20 some years before that said well you know she was hanged but she died from oral copulation she actually died from oral copulation. Whoa. Yeah. And so that never came out in any newspaper report or anything at the time. So I cogitated on that for a couple of weeks and then called Tom back and said, so Tom, did, you, did it ever occur to you that he was the killer? That he knew something that other people didn't? Because yeah. I have the autopsy, yeah. the death report. And it says method of discovery and death. And it said probable hanging. And then under that, in parentheses, asphyxiation, indicating she 
died before she was hanged, right? Right. So now I've got two people almost equal on my list about that. And as a sidelight, I called my friend uh, who used to be uh, in the Department of Anthropology with me at one of the schools, and she's the a medical examiner, mm-hmm. an assistant on call. And I said, so, uh, Madeline, I got a question for you. And she said, you call me with the weirdest questions, Richard. <laughs> Last time it was how long to take an egg sandwich to digest in the stomach. And I said, oh, yeah, that's another story. Yep. And she goes, yep. What's, what is it this time? And I said, can you die from oral copulation? And she goes, well, of course. And I said, how, how often does that happen? And this was March when I talked to her or this year, March or April. She says, well, three this year. And then she went into graphic discussion about they were sex workers and somebody getting oral copulation held the head and pulled it in and overrode the gag reflex. Yeah. Really? <laughs> you never know where historical research is going to take you, right? Yeah. You learn something new every day, Richard. Something new every day. Wow. Every day. So, so I actually talked to, to the sheriff, Lisa, uh, Lieutenant Lisa, as I call her, at the sheriff's department, uh, when she was trying to close that case out, because then she could give me all the files. And the attorneys for the sheriff's department had agreed once she closed it out. But you have to imagine this, Tim. Lisa is doing cold cases from 1926 to 1935, and there's 80 or so of them. And she's trying to resolve these. So she moved mine to the front of the burner a little bit. Okay. But the people above her wanted to start with 1926 and work their way forward. So Lisa would help me with a little thing. She said, well, I can tell you this. And then she would say, and actually, you already know this. And you know this more than we do. She says, you've helped me on this case because you've told me things. She said, yeah, in, in, in the investigation notes, it was alluded to that maybe she had done oral copulation and that was part of it, but they didn't look for semen in the throat at that time. They only looked in the vaginal area. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think, I guess if I had to, to bet money on it, I still like Herman for it. Although I met people now who are a member of the, of the family of his first wife, mm-hmm. uh, uh, an aunt, and she knew Herman. She knew Herman and met him later in life and all that and just can't imagine he did it. Of course, we always hear that, right? Nobody imagines Ted yeah. Bundy either. Right, right. So that doesn't carry a lot of weight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So wow. uh, that's that's part of my, my spiel as I get ready here to go out on the road and pitch my book and, and give some talks as well. You can, it's almost like, uh, what's that Ayn Rand book, January the 16th or something? It's a court trial and you get to decide the guilt or innocent of the person, I'm going to leave it up to my audience yeah. to decide that, but I'm going to take them both ways. Well, it is kind of a choose your own adventure, I guess, right? Uh, um, you you kind of can see where both men uh, could have done it. I mean, you, you can, you know, it, it's very possible both could have done it. Both had motive. Yeah. Um, both had uh, opportunity and it, it either could have. It, it, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And he was the young, the young man at the time, Cyril, who was like 19 when he got his pilot's license. Um, he was a womanizer and later, <laughs> later in his seventies was arrested for oral copulation with two minors. Oh my God. By goodness. the way. Wow. Yeah. 
So wow. that's, and that's part of the beauty of doing this kind of research is that <laughs> I know more about that person clearly than they did in 1931, right? Right. So I, yeah. I think, Tim, somewhere in the book I mentioned, it's like the, the play Our Town, right, where they're, they're all up the graveyard and they're talking about people they knew and what happened to them and all that. That's how this book was. And the more I got into it, you know, so Herman had a daughter, contacted her. This pilot was there. This old friend of his from the 50s calls up and talks to me. I get to follow these things out. Virginia Brooks' uh, mother uh, was heartbroken by this, and apparently the marriage broke up, and the, the dad went up north to, to do lumbering, and she ended up dying from a failed abortion. Yeah. And so, I, you know, it is like our town. I'm standing near the graves of these people, and I'm hearing their stories and writing the story, which was which was my job, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, wasn't it um, wasn't it uh, Louise's dad who died? Uh, he died trying to trying to fix his car. Yeah, he uh, he was going back to Chicago to see. I believe it was his wife's parents, but it might have been his parents, the grandparents who Louise wanted to run off to. And somewhere in the middle of nowhere between Arizona and Texas, his car broke down and it was an older car anyhow. And he tried to fix it, apparently. And then between exhaustion and maybe a heart attack, <clears throat> literally got in the back seat and died. Was found in this back seat off to off, off of a highway. So there's a lot of tragedy in all these stories. So nobody got to Chicago. Yeah. No, no one got to the good point. No one got to Chicago. That's, yeah. that's sad. Um, the third and uh, and very tragic uh, story of, of Hazel Bradshaw, um, and, and let's let's talk about her case here before we we leave people today. Um, tell us about Hazel Bradshaw and and who she was. Hazel Bradshaw was a twenty two year old and worked as a stenographer and receptionist for uh, the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad downtown. And by all accounts, uh, was not quite as flirtatious or as new, new womany uh, as a modern girl as as Louise was, and lived in a house where she and her sister were the sole supporters. She had a disabled father. They lived down actually three blocks from where I lived growing up. Interestingly enough, over in what's called East San Diego, and dated a few people, including military guys, which plays into the story when they try to investigate it. But she dated one person um, pretty much full-time as a steady date. He was in his 30s, and he was a southern boy, kind of small. He was described as small and uh, semi-handsome, losing some of his hair in, in the early 30s, as, as we do sometimes. And uh, Moss was his name. And they went to a movie downtown. He picked her up after work, picked up, meaning walked to the, store, the place she worked, and then walked her to a movie. And then they saw a movie there, and then they walked up a few blocks and went to another movie. And uh, it, from the trial and such, we, we know exactly what they ate. They had some popcorn, they had a couple Hershey bars. And then they, at around 11 o'clock at night, uh, walked home the six miles, mm -hmm. the roughly six miles home, which again, today would be unheard of. But back in that time, while that's a little bit more than some people, it was not unusual. I mean, that came out that, no, that, that happens. Yeah. So he walks her home. They're seen by some people walking through Balboa 
Park, the famous Balboa Park where the San Diego Zoo is. They go by the zoo. Then he drops her off. He says he drops her off at her house. He heard the screen door close. He waved goodbye. He runs and catches the uh, streetcar. Streetcar conductor later says, yep, he got on and then goes downtown to his uh, apartment. And that's the end of that. Except the next day when he's uh, playing cards in a card house, somebody brings a newspaper in and it talks about her being found stabbed to death with 11 to 20 stab wounds in Balboa Park. And that starts the saga of of uh, Hazel Bradshaw. So he turns himself in right away because uh, there was a fellow there who was trying out to be a cop, was not a cop yet. And he says, that that was your girlfriend? He goes, yeah. And he goes, you need to go turn yourself into the cops right now because they're going to be looking for you. Mm-hmm. So he did. And uh, they put him in jail, no bail, no bond. And other. they focused on him. They really didn't look at other people. And ultimately, it went to trial, partially because this lead detective worked very closely with the judge and the attorney, uh, the uh, attorneys for the, the prosecution to make sure it went to trial. He said that he'd been uh, threatened by a gun by the police chief, put a gun to his head and said, you need to confess right now. And part of the story in the book is all the, frankly, the abuse that this little Southerner put up with uh, as he, before he went to trial. Yeah and yeah. and again we sh- we should leave a lot of that for for the the reader to read because it it's astounding how much they put Moss through in in trying to put him on the hook and again we want to stress the police chief is on his way out he's he's retiring and he needs right. a win here Richard I mean he absolutely <laughs> needs a win here uh because they haven't got anybody for Virginia they hadn't got anybody for Louise and they need somebody here. Uh, they absolutely need somebody here for Hazel Bradshaw. And they, they do. Yeah. And, and if you were watching this on a TV show, you know, one of the forensic shows or 48 hours or whatever, they would certainly bring up, well, they never found the knife. There was no actual human blood. This, mm-hmm. And this was part of the investigation. There was some blood on a, on a tie that Moss had, but it wasn't the tie he was wearing that night, apparently although the prosecution tried to say it was, and they tested it and it came out positive for blood, but not inclusively human or non-human at that time. And and so there's all the circumstantial evidence, which, you know, many people can, in fact, be convicted and are on circumstantial because it's pretty strong. But yeah, when you look at it objectively now and you look back on it and you look at all the investigation, yeah, it's it's not a good case. He was uh, He was, I think, set up for it. And and it went to trial. And as I mentioned in the book, without giving all the Indians away, I talked to a nephew who's still alive. I guess it'd be a grandnephew of her, of, of Hazel. And I sent him my part of the chapter I was working on. And I'll just leave it at he completely disagreed with my conclusions. He said, that's not what the family thinks. Really? The family agrees with what happened in, in, in you know, here and there. And, and yeah, he got off. He got off and went crazy on me, wouldn't talk to me anymore. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. So all these years later, it's still fresh out there in some people's minds. Huh. All right. All right. 
Folks, I tell you, it's an incredibly interesting book. It's called Monsters on the Loose, The True Story of Three Unsolved Murders in Prohibition-Era San Diego. Richard L. Carrico is the author and our guest today. Richard, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, it was my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm out here in sunny San Diego, and I'm actually starting uh, work on a, another book oh, uh, that good. won't be familiar to most people today, Spade Cooley, uh, who kind of in his mind, at least in the 1930s, same time period, invented country swing. Really? And was very famous, good friends with Gene Autry and Roy Rogers, and ended up bludgeoning his wife to death. And that's my next book. Really? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That sounds so yeah. interesting. That's that's very interesting. Yeah. Well, will you come back and, and visit us with that? I absolutely will, and I appreciate the chance to do this. Thank you. Well, thank you, Richard. We appreciate you. Uh, well, let's lighten things up, folks. Let's uh, let's bring in Beer City Bruiser. It's time now for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. It's, it's Crayon News Storytime. What happened with this dude, Christbearer? I heard he uh, cut his penis off and then jumped off a balcony. Suspect pulls gun from butt, shoots twice at Denver police. What is your emergency? Uh, I need help. And what's the problem? I'm too high. You're too high? Yeah. It's that time again, the time you've all been looking forward to. It's time now for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. In order to get this party started, we need a co-host. We bring in the co-host with the most, the BCB, the big cuddly bear himself, Beer City Bruiser. How you doing, Bruiser? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. I am a proud papa. Really? My son has successfully fulfilled his uh, duties to the United States Army. He was uh, honorably discharged last week, and he's now making his way into civilian life. But he did it. He uh, served his country, served us, and I couldn't be more proud. Well, congratulations, uh, Bruiser Jr. Yeah, so now he uh, he's out, and uh, he actually called me today because he had a job interview. I'm like, really, that quick? He goes, yep. He goes, I got to keep it all lined up. Really? Yep. Wow, no rest for that kid, huh? Oh, no. He's got the work ethic, you know, and uh, and the Army was the best thing for him. He was, when he was a kid, you know, he uh, kind of missed, as we normally do, you go down a path that you don't want to go down and cause trouble and whatnot. And he knew making the decision going to the Army would straighten his life out. So he made that decision on his own. And he went there, and it was for the best. And oh. now he's a completely different person. He's a mature you know, young soldier. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yes, sir. No, sir. And it's weird hearing him call me, sir. <laughs> like, you don't have to call me that, you know? Wow. But yeah. And uh, and now he's out and he knows what he wants to do with his future. And he's set, man. So I'm just so proud because he, he did it. He served our country as, you know, I couldn't do that. So. Wow. Well, very proud of him and, and very happy for him. And that's that's impressive that he's already out, got a job, and in honest way, that that's wow. That says something. That says yep. something. And so. He's looking at houses, and he's 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 got you know he was never this way before the army. But the army taught him you got to plan and get your you know get everything lined up and yeah, ducks you. in a row, and he yeah. did it and wow, got out of there unscathed, and 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 getting the honorable discharge, he gets all those benefits now, and yeah, you know, he's got a he's, pension. Uh, He's got a pension. He's got all of it. So Wow. All right. Better than I was at his age. <laughs> Way to go, kid. 
Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, and I did ask. I said, "What you know? What's the future hold?" And and he he did bring it up. He goes, "I'm thinking of becoming a professional underwater needle pointer." Really? He's thinking about. It. He's tossing. He wants to save some money right now because he knows starting out in that profession, you make no money. You know that. Right. You make yeah, no yeah. money, and so he wants yeah. to build up something because if he does it, he wants to do it a hundred percent. Yeah. And so uh, he's he's gonna take a couple of years to think about it, and then if he wants to do it, he's gonna move down here by his old man and nice. Hopefully, see a Bruiser Junior in the in the ring. A Bruiser Junior, that'd be awesome. There you go. Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, we'll we'll keep an eye out for him. Yeah, I go. just wanted to put over the props because he yeah he did something not a lot of us could do, and that's right. That's I'm very right. proud of him. Well, we're very proud of him as well. Way to go. Way to go. Props to him. Props to him. And thank you for serving your country, sir. We appreciate it. Uh, well, today's Dumb Crime Stupid Criminals is, uh, let's just say, action-packed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> so so full of people we wouldn't be proud of. <laughs> uh, yes, this is uh, full of lots of people we're not very proud of. Um, but we, we get entertainment out of none, uh, nonetheless. Okay. Um, I'll tell you this much. Uh, our listeners are coming through once again, and we appreciate it. Again, if you have a story for us, uh, Tim at darknessradio.com. Got to thank A. Wiltfong. Got to thank Brian. Um, uh, Got to thank uh, the people who are coming through in, in spades. Tom, everybody. Um, lots of good stories today. Well, they always throw such interesting stories, too, which I love. Yes. They, know our, they know our taste. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think it's the stuff they'd like to hear, too. Exactly, yeah. Our first story is an odd one. Okay. It uh, takes place in Iowa, of course, because it's an odd story. I, I'll give myself myself one of these. <laughs> I'm giving myself a rim shot. I. That, that takes skill. So wait, wait, wait. At the British rim shot? Remember, we learned about that last week. <laughs> yeah, well, if I'm giving myself a British rim shot, I got to be flexible. Thank you. <laughs> Just saying. I had one listener tell me to get rid of that, by the way. Well. You know what? It's not going anywhere <laughs> because it's 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 a double on on what is it? Double entendre. Yeah, double entendre. Yeah. Yep. it's yep. a double entendre now because yeah. our friends over in England let us know. Yeah, they're they're happy, and it makes them giggle. Yeah. You know what? Hey, not everybody's going to love everything, but just look past it. Yeah, just look past it. A driver of a stalled car faces a murder charge bruiser after troopers find a man's body slumped in a passenger seat under a pile of clothes. <laughs> so the clothes weren't hiding him enough, huh? Yeah, he didn't, he didn't have enough clothes to hide him. Yeah, uh, this clothes has a head. Oh, no, no, ignore that. Ignore that. Yeah, whoops. that's not a body officer. That's just my rumpled shirt. <laughs> uh, troopers responding to a stalled car on a highway in Iowa this week found a man's body slumped in the passenger seat hidden under clothing and arrested the driver who had asked officers for a jump start so yeah he brought the cops to him so mental note after murdering somebody if they're still in your vehicle don't call the cops for help yes this is a young man who doesn't have it all together bruiser the driver, who is identified as 23-year-old Jihad Abdul Malik Gassaway. Now that's a name. That is a name. Was booked on $50,000 bail into the, I believe it's a Powashik County Jail on murder and abuse of a corpse charge in the death of Camp Xavier Sherrod Hariel, who's 26 years old. That's according to police. The discovery was made on Tuesday morning when Iowa State Patrol responded to reports of 
a stranded Chevy Malibu on Interstate 80 at the 187-mile marker. A trooper found Gasaway trying to restart a stalled vehicle. An affidavit obtained by Law and Crime outlines the case when troopers arrived at the stalled car and found Gasaway standing outside the vehicle. He allegedly told the officers he needed a jump and that he had a gun, a Taurus 9mm pistol, which turned out to be the murder weapon, according to the document. (laughs) He's just giving them everything. Here, officer, here's the entire crime right here. Why don't you go ahead and bust me? You need me to sign a confession, too? I'd be more than happy to do that. Sure. Not a, oh, no, that's the dead body. I'm taking it to the morgue. I promise. Yeah. Uh, Oh, the gun, I found it next to the dead body. I figured I'd bring it to the morgue, leave it there, call you guys. You guys could figure it out. (laughs) That's what he should have said. Yeah, yeah. You should have made it like, I'm the officer in charge of this investigation. I'm here to wrap everything up for you in a nice little bow. Upon further investigation, another male was located in the front passenger of the vehicle. The affidavit said the male was covered with miscellaneous clothing and was not responding to the troopers. Boy, that's a weekend at Bernie's moment, isn't it? Yeah, it is. (laughs) Excuse me, sir. Are you alive? Uh, Troopers noted in the affidavit that Gasway did not call 911 to request medical assistance or tell them that someone was dead in the car. Probably because he's guilty. And that would be an awkward conversation. Like, yeah, I need a jump, and um, my buddy's dead in the front seat. <laughs> By the way. Here's the gun that did it. <laughs> after you're done putting the the uh, cables on the uh, battery, can you put them on my friend's nipples to see if you can get his heart to start again? <laughs> I'm just wondering, because he's dead. <laughs> I know you can't see him, because I cleverly hit him under all my clothes (laughs) yeah i was trying to keep him warm officer for when you came here to put the battery cables on his nipples to yeah i watch flatliners that's that's how you bring people back that's right (laughs) uh they said he had covered the body with clothing to conceal it oh so he just admitted (laughs) this this is the perfect criminal for police (laughs) he's this officer has nothing this officer probably could go hey could you write my report too like, I'm just, my carpet tunnel's kicking in. Yeah, if you would, we write so much paperwork. It's it's <laughs> such a burden. Could you just fill this out for us? Sure, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> At the sheriff's office, Gasaway uh, allegedly told investigators he and the victim had left Cedar Rapids for Des Moines early that morning. Uh, he said he covered the victim because I thought he was very cold and kept him warm because we were both cold, the document said. <laughs> He's cold because he's dead, you idiot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that the victim was gone until I watched the police eyes and read his lips. That's when I started crying in the car. He was alive and talking to me, said Gassaway. (laughs) Just probably going, I need a hospital, not clothes. (laughs) Take me to a hospital. Stop putting clothes on me. I need bandages and forceps to take the bullet out. Call 911. Oh, I did. They come to jump the car. No, you idiot. (laughs) (laughs) I need an ambulance. (laughs) Investigators learned a vehicle had been reported in a ditch along I-80 near mile marker 205 at 601 that morning. Investigators also learned that the 2010 Malibu had been in a ditch while driven by the suspect sometime before stopping near mile marker 188. So he was doing the stop and go for quite a few miles. Yes, he was. Yeah. 
uh, when asked if the victim was alive when the Malibu went into the ditch, the suspect allegedly said, yeah. <laughs> sure was. Sure was. Uh, when cold, asked, but he was alive. Yeah, he was alive. Yeah. Uh, when asked when, what happened to the victim, the defendant said, we got into it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. While searching the Malibu, investigators found a 9mm shell casing on the front floorboard and two expended bullets in the front passenger door. Oh, I think this pretty much explains itself. So he missed the first two times. <laughs> I, I or they went through the guy. <laughs> they went through the guy, I think, yeah. Uh, the casings came from the gun troopers had taken from the defendant, the affidavit said. Hmm. It was unclear whether he has an attorney. If he does, he probably also is very cold and covered by clothes, <laughs> I'm guessing. I don't know. This kid doesn't have an attorney. This kid actually is the um, prosecuting attorney. <laughs> He's going to go in and prosecute himself. Here's a picture of said defendant. He has no idea how much trouble he's in. Yeah, he has no idea. He looks pretty clueless, doesn't he? Why does he not have a shirt on, too? <laughs> well, he gave all his clothes to the dead guy. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So. Let's say, I know why you're cold, man. You don't have a shirt on. But you're trying to make sure your buddy stays warm. Yep. Jihad Abdul Malik Gassaway. When you put it all together in an acronym, it's Jam or Jambig. Jambig. <laughs> Do you think they were arguing about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey? Yes, they were. I think so. They were arguing that the fact that 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 game was so close was because Taylor wasn't there. (laughs) Exactly. Tay-Tay wasn't there. The whole reason Kelsey got injured was because Tay-Tay wasn't there to take care of him. That's exactly right. That's right. A man acted odd, stood on top of vehicles, then chased and stabbed innocent bystander at Circus Circus Manor. Okay. We go to Las Vegas where people are losing their minds. <laughs> well, yeah, it's Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. A California man accused of attacking and stabbing a man in the parking lot of Circus Circus Manor was acting strange prior to the attack, according to the arrest report. Omar Alakad uh, was seen taking his shirt off, again, stripping down. Yep. yep. I guess that's the theme this week is take your shirt off and kill somebody. Taking your shirt off is a theme this week. <laughs> I'll give you that. Uh, well, we had to take your shirt off, shoot somebody. Now we have to take your shirt off, stab somebody. Right. Uh, was seen taking your shirt off and standing on top of vehicles, pacing around the parking lot, and striking a golf cart being driven by a Circus Circus employee with a shovel as he chased it. <laughs> Get off my lawn. You're on our lawn. Get away. <laughs> <laughs> The incident was reported to police on Friday, September 29th at around 11.40 a.m. after the chased employee notified hotel security. The employee told police he got out of the cart and ran away to escape a locket. Uh, but So he runs faster than a golf cart. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, they aren't that quick, I guess, over at Circus Circus Manor. Uh, but then observed him striking the hood of a parked pickup truck and then a, se- a Chevy Suburban. So he had multiple striking vehicles. He just doesn't like big vehicles. No. He's, all, he's, a, he's a compact car guy. He doesn't like big trucks, and I cannot lie. <laughs> I, I know. Uh, the two men who had been in the Suburban said they were concerned after witnessing Alakad's bizarre behavior, especially after they saw him take out a knife. One of the men told police he grabbed a crowbar for safety and threw it at Alakad, which caused Alakad to chase him. And the two got into a physical fight that resulted in the man getting cut across his forehead. 
Yikes. Yeah, if you're going into a fight and you have a weapon like a crowbar, do not throw it. No, hold on to it. <laughs> it's a much better weapon in your hand. It is, yeah. Uh, the stabbing victim was able to grab the crowbar and begin hitting a locket with it to subdue him. That, according to the arrest report, a locket lost his two front teeth during the fight. Oh, ouch. Been there. Y- yeah. Uh, a <laughs> lock- <was> a chair, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a chair? Oh, yeah, I took a chair shot to the teeth. Oh. Yeah, it's what shattered. It, it shattered my teeth. It didn't knock them out either. So I had to happen on a Friday. I couldn't go until a Monday to get, so they could only take the bits out. Oh. So I had, like, shards in my mouth for a weekend. Oh. Yeah. That's why I always laugh when people, oh, you guys hit each other fake chairs. Oh, yeah? Can I have my real teeth back from that fake chair? <laughs> oh. That made me physically hurt. Oh, I should show you the video sometime. I can't watch it because the sound, the sound the chair makes when it hits my teeth, you can hear it on camera. No. Yeah. Mm, maybe we should post it on the uh, website. Uh, it's disgusting, I'll tell you that much. Send me the link, I'll post it on a blog. I have to actually put it on, because it's on VHS tape. So oh, is it on VHS transfer, tape? Yeah, that's okay. how old it is. It was my third match. Oh my God. Yikes. Uh, Lockett was arrested and charged with attempted murder with the use of a deadly weapon. He was being held on bail, but made bail and was released on Monday. What? They let him go? Yeah. Why would they give this guy bail? (laughs) I guess because there's more trucks that needed to be beaten. I have no idea. I guess so. He's due back in court for a preliminary hearing, not until February 27th of 2024. So this guy gets to roam around and do whatever he wants. Yeah, he gets to beat more or trucks and golf carts until then. <laughs> That's it. Just they should have just told him you, you you're you made bail. You can go, but you can't go anywhere that motorized vehicles are because you have a, a hatred for motorized vehicles. <laughs> That's right. It's unusually ironic that you mentioned a chair to the head. Oh, okay. That's our next story. <laughs> All right. All right. I, I can relate to this story. Last week we reported on was it a, D- a Detroit? A teacher that almost got hit in the head with a chair in school? I believe it was, yeah. Now we're going to Louisiana, where a teacher lost it and hit a crying third grader in the head with a chair. (laughs) What is it with schools this year and people hitting people with chairs? Why why would you hit a third grader? I know they can be assholes, but... (laughs) I've been hit with... I've been hit by... Many people with a chair. There's no way a third grader is putting his hands up to protect himself. No. <laughs> no. A nine-year-old Louisiana girl was left bloodied after she was hit by a chair at school, deputies say. Now her teacher has been charged. Lexis Boyd was arrested September 29th following a classroom incident at Columbia Elementary School, according to the Caldwell Parish Sheriff's Office. The third grade educator told deputies she lost it, that's in quotes, and hurled the chair in frustration. School board personnel reported the incident to authorities on Friday per an arrest affidavit obtained by McClatchy News. Responding deputies spoke with the principal and fellow faculty who said the teacher threw a chair at a student, hitting her in the head. Oh, yikes. In her interview with authorities, Boyd said she was in the middle of teaching when the girl started crying and asking to go to the office. Well, let her go to the office. Yeah, let her go to the office. Something's wrong. Yeah. The educator said she felt the girl was trying to avoid doing her schoolwork. 
No, she just has an issue. Even if she is, it's not up to you to decide. That's right. That's right. That's when Boyd slammed her hand on the desk where she and the student were seated and picked up a chair, she told deputies. In flipping the chair back down, she struck the child on the top of the head. That's where the teacher is out of control. Yeah. Yeah. Teacher doesn't need to be doing that. And you know what? We're not that. God, we got to be what? Maybe a month and a half into the school year? Yeah. And you're already losing it? Yeah. Yeah. The teacher needs help. Yeah. Uh, Deputies said there is video and audio of the incident, which happened in front of 15 other students. In the recording, the girl is bleeding and asking her teacher why she hit her. Yeah, that's traumatizing. You're supposed to trust your teacher. Boyd replied, sorry, I lost it. (laughs) That's not an excuse. You shouldn't be hitting a child with a chair. Right. The child was taken to a hospital for treatment. Deputies didn't give an update on her condition. Boyd was charged with causing injury to a child and released on her own recognizance, authorities said. It's not clear if she still works at the school. I hope she doesn't. Oh, I hope they fire her ass, and I hope she they pull her teacher's license in Louisiana. And I hope they hit her with a chair on the way out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if, if they're afraid to do it, I give me a call. I'll come in. I'll hit her. That's right. Bruiser's got a hell of a chair shot for her on the way out. I do. Yeah. I do. Uh, Although personnel and student matters are confidential, student safety and the proper conduct of school district employees are a priority. A Caldwell Parish school spokesperson (laughs) basically backtracked and told McClatchy News in a statement calling the incident disheartening. Well, that's one way to cover it. Uh, We are reviewing the matter internally in order that it may be properly addressed and are cooperating with law enforcement and its investigation of this matter at this time, the pokes, pokes person, yes, spokesperson poke. said, pokes person. Uh, Columbia is about 160 miles northwest of Baton Rouge. Oh, Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge. Yeah, they need to fire her ass. Uh, talk, exactly, Bruiser. See, Bruiser gets it. That's right. Uh, even more disheartening and, uh, yes, and, and even more... Um, I shouldn't say disheartening, even more disgusting. That's what I'm looking for. In another story that's absolutely disgusting, Bruiser. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this name right because I don't watch the show. So you got to okay. tell you got to tell me, Kim Zolchak. Do you watch the any of the Housewife shows? No, <laughs> Mrs. Bruiser does. So the, the Real Housewives of Atlanta. Do you watch that show? I don't know. Okay. No, she watches them. So I think it's Kim Zolciak. 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 Uh, tells police that she needs to sleep on a $20,000 mattress after Croy Bierman locks the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> this one was, was sent to us by A. Wiltfong, as uh, is the uh, email addresses. I, I don't know who this person is, but they send me the, the coolest stories. Okay. Are you ready for this? I'm uh, ready. This is going to be interesting. $20,000, huh? $20,000 mattress. Needs to sleep on it because of her neck. Are you ready for this? Now, yeah. you and I both have pretty screwed up necks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every I have, time I turn my head, it sounds like bacon frying. Yeah, 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 exactly. I have uh, I have a broken C2 and C5. Uh, yeah, So, but I've never needed a $20,000 mattress. <laughs> Neither have I, and no. I'd be afraid to sleep in a $20,000 mattress. I would be too, yeah. I, I think I would break in two if I did. I would, definitely. Uh, a Real Housewives of Atlanta star, Kim Zolchak Bierman, and estranged husband, Croy Bierman, 
had a tense exchange with law enforcement during their ongoing divorce. Police officers were called to the ex's home in Alpharetta, Georgia in late August. I just had major neck surgery, so I need to sleep in my bed. I came home and I'm locked out of my room, which happens all the time. Zolciak Bierman, who's 45, claimed in body cam footage from the incident obtained by Us Weekly. When a police officer asked the reality star whether there was another bedroom she could sleep in for the night, she replied, no, because of my neck. This is like a $20,000 mattress. (laughs) Okay. She added that her daughter's mattresses were too soft for her to comfortably sleep on. I love a soft mattress, by the way. I do, too. Yeah. I there's no mattress that's too soft for me. Me either. I love a nice soft mattress. And I think if you have any back issues whatsoever, a soft mattress is wonderful. Oh yeah. 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 It's it's when they're too hard that it's worse. That's why I like Marriott's and Hilton's because they have nice soft mattresses. Yes. Marriott's and Hilton's are the best. That's the primary that was the primary um hotels for Ring of Honor. And so I got used to Real nice hotel rooms. I remember my first show on the Indies. Yep. <laughs> I'm in Nebraska, and I'm staying at an America Inn. American. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. one of those motels. And, and I get in, and there's two pillows that, you know, scratch like cardboard, and it's a rock-hard mattress. And I'm like, I've fallen so far. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I used to sleep in nice hotels. Now here I am. I mean, I love the promoter. He's a great guy, but it's just like, eh. I love Michigan Paracon, but the uh, the Kiwaden casinos haven't changed the bed since the casino opened. <laughs> so it's a, it's a cement slab. Yep. And it, oh, my God. It, it wrecks me. Every Hell single yeah. year, it wrecks me. Yep. And I just... I hurt for a week and a half after I come home. I believe it. Just from sleeping on that bed. It's, it's, oh. And you don't sleep for that long. I mean, you've got so much going on that you, you maybe get four hours of sleep a night. And if that, yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah. but it's, it's just horrible. Uh, but here we're complaining about sleep and we're, we're, we're laughing at uh, Kim. <laughs> She's complaining about a $20,000 mattress. Right. Look at, look at the two different lives. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the same law enforcement official informed 38-year-old Beerman uh, that he could be charged with criminal trespassing for failing to grant Zolciak Beerman equal access to marital property. The former linebacker replied from behind the locked door, No, I can't. <laughs> I know my rights. <laughs> uh, Zolciak Beerman then claimed that her ex doesn't ha- even have a job to pay for this house and noted that she needed to retrieve items from the room, including a $1,000 cream that I paid for. Oh, what J- is that cream going to do that costs $1,000? It better do something. I was going to say, if I'm buying a $1,000 cream, I better get a happy ending every time I put it on. Right? <laughs> uh, Beerman contested that he was not comfortable opening the door for his safety. Isn't he a former linebacker? And doesn't she, didn't she just have neck surgery? <laughs> right. What's going to happen here if he opens that door? Like, if she comes at you, guess what? Hit her in the neck. <laughs> <laughs> he eventually opened the door and left Zolciak Beerman's belongings outside of the bedroom. After Zolciak Beerman had all the items in her possession, she told officers, I could have called you every day for the last two years of my life. I don't know about that, but okay. It could have. Uh, it wouldn't have meant anything. Right. 
Uh, the incident came one day after Bierman filed for divorce for the second time on August 24th, stating that his marriage was irretrievably broken. Uh, he initially filed for divorce in May, but the pair temporarily called off their split in July. Last month, Zolciak Bierman filed paperwork requesting that Bierman's second divorce petition be dismissed. I think these people have some personal problems that are not going to be resolved by police. No, they definitely need therapy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In her September 25th filing, Zolciak Bierman claimed that she and the retired football player have engaged in marital sexual relations since he filed for divorce again, most recently on or about September 7th of 2023. Didn't she have neck surgery? Or, <laughs> or maybe that's what caused the neck surgery. Maybe. Maybe. It's that, that we're together, we're not together, sex. Just messed up her neck. You know, we found out from our guests that oral copulation can cause death. Oh, okay. Yeah, you can go past the gag reflex, as he told us. <laughs> and it can cause death. So maybe they were trying that, and that's what broke her neck. Well, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's funny. They are doing breakup sex. Yeah. Well, you know. You know, uh, they get that one time in there, you know. That's right. Uh, she argued that Bierman's allegation of an irretrievably broken marriage is demonstrably false due to their resumed cohabitation. Why is she using such big words? Why does she need to sound smart? I think that's her lawyers doing that. I was going to say, that's definitely lawyer talk right there, right? Like a lawyer yeah. wrote the statement? Yeah. Again, why do they got to make it sound so smart? You know what I mean? Just say, hey, we can't live together because we hate each other. We hate each other, but the banging is good. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, he rocked me so hard I'd have neck surgery. <laughs> Bierman responded with a filing of his own one day later, stating that he has no desire to reconcile with his ex. The fact that he engaged in sexual relations with respondent, she doesn't get a name, by the way, it's respondent, uh, does not indicate a desire to reconcile. Oh, that's cold. No, it's just a, a desire to get his nut off. <laughs> <laughs> and a rim shot. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Elsewhere in the filing, Bierman argued, see, that's where you can use it. Exactly. There. So Our English audience is so proud of us right now. That's right. <laughs> They're so proud of you. There's a tip of our cat, merry old England. Uh, Elsewhere in the filing, Bierman argued that the duo's current living situation is unsustainable and detrimental to the mental and emotional health of their minor children. Uh so why are you guys still together? Why don't you, I mean, they're rich enough to go, go stay at a hotel for a week. Yeah, I don't know. Or they've got to have a lake house or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's more here. Blah, 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 blah. They're sad. They're rich. <laughs> they're rich and sad. Sad and rich. A bunch of stuff I don't care about. So, there you go. But he doesn't have a job, minus the fact he's a retired linebacker and probably making a ton of money on his pension. That's right. That's right. Interesting story here, Bruiser. Uh, a story of a good guy gone bad. Oh, that's always sad. But boy, never want to live long enough to become the villain. That's right. But boy, when you go bad, you go bad. <laughs> <laughs> this guy did it upright. An ex-deputy faces felony charges after being caught with more than a hundred pounds of fentanyl, not Ooh. grams, pounds of fentanyl. Wow. So this guy's probably done how many drug busts and saw how much money was there. And he's like, you know what? Screw this good stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm not just going to go big. I'm going real big. I'm not swinging for the fences. I'm putting it out of the stadium. 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A former Riverside County Sheriff's Department correctional deputy faces a series of local felony charges after he was allegedly caught with more than 100 pounds of fentanyl in a gun. Because you got to defend yourself when you've got 100 pounds of fentanyl. <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah. I, I kind of expected the gun to go along. And he's a former sheriff, so he's going to have a gun anyways. Yeah. Banning resident Jorge Osagera Roca. He's all of 25 years old. That's it? That's it. Entire, so entire yeah. life ahead of him. Yeah. yeah. And he just thought, hey, I'll make more money selling fentanyl. Yep. Was pulled over in Calamesa on uh, September 17th. And authorities allege, allegedly found a gun in narcotics. The Riverside County District Attorney's Office said in a news release, the Sheriff's Department confirmed that Osagera Roca had been under investigation for playing a pivotal role of trafficking large quantities of narcotics within Riverside County while off-duty. On Tuesday, the Sheriff's Department detailed that the drugs in question were fentanyl pills, of which Osagera Roca had 104 pounds. Wow. And he was still, he was still uh, on duty, it sounds like. Because it says off duty is how he got caught. So he, how do you not know they're investigating him? You know, he's a bad criminal. Yeah. Federal prosecutors declined to file charges against him, but River. What? Yeah. Evidently, they maybe they were trying to get to a bigger source. Than one hundred and four pounds. <laughs> maybe he's got a bigger. Maybe he's getting it for somebody bigger. Maybe. Yeah. But one hundred and four pounds is a pretty good sizable amount of fentanyl. My guess is he's getting it from Mexico. So it's he's got a yeah. bigger source in Mexico. Uh, federal prosecutors declined to file charges against him, but Riverside County officials charged Osagira Roca with possession of narcotics, transportation with the intent to distribute narcotics, weight enhancements for the narcotics, and possession of a firearm while in possession of narcotics. He's being held at the John Benoit detention center in lieu of five million dollars bail yeah he's not going anywhere <laughs> the rcsd said the large bail figure was based on the weight amount danger to the public and potential for asagara roca to flee from prosecution if convicted on all the charges he could be sentenced up to how many years in jail uh, let's say 75 years to life are you sitting down? Yeah. 10 years in jail. That's it? <laughs> yes. That is it. That's why you did it. He'll be out when he's 35. Mm -hmm. He still has a life ahead of him. Less than that with good behavior. That's true. Yeah. At the time of his arrest, Asagira Roca was a deputy at the Larry D. Smith Correctional Facility, a position that he resigned before he could be fired. <laughs> His next court date his is one phone call was to his boss. <laughs> that's right. His next court date is on Halloween. <laughs> that's like his one phone call was to his boss so he could quit. <laughs> I quit. You didn't fire me. <laughs> <laughs> Trick or treat. I got fentanyl for you. 104 pounds worth. That's so much fentanyl. A local man is freed after spending 28 years in prison for crimes he did not commit. Yeah, he was oh, okay. Years old when he was that's uh, <laughs> that's the old weird. man wanting to get in on this or what? Your ghost? I, I guess, yeah. Hmm. 
Interesting. Okay. <laughs> we'll move on. Uh, we're going to get into food crimes now. Oh, okay. Yeah. I like the food crimes. Food They're crimes. Fun. What are people getting hit with? That's right. Uh, we go to McDonald's because why not? Yeah. The McRib coming back next week. Or, or oh, not I'm next sorry. week, next month. Next month. I'm, so I, I'm just wishing it's next week. <laughs> so happy. Uh, next month, McRib is back, kids. But in the meantime, there's plenty of crimes to do at McDonald's. A 9mm handgun, it makes for an unhappy meal. That's true. Uh, <laughs> Depends on who's getting the happy meal, I guess. That's true. After asking... Hey, Mom, look what I got. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not yours. <laughs> that's not. Yeah, that's not the toy we wanted. Uh, after asking a McDonald's patron to buy him a happy meal and some other grub, a North Dakota man pulled out a gun when his request was rejected and met the suggestion to go get a job, cops say. <laughs> Go get a job, you hippie. Oh, yeah? Hippie this. Responding Saturday to a terrorizing report, police busted George Demarius, uh, who is 33 years old, outside the Bismarck restaurant. Officers located a 9mm handgun, which Demarius had concealed in the stroller that his one-year-old daughter was seated in. Oh, come on. Yeah. People, oh, this is just a true idiot. Yeah. According to a probable cause affidavit, 43-year-old Trent Guthmiller was on a break from work and walking into McDonald's to get lunch when Demarius asked him to buy or asked him to buy him a Big Mac and a Happy Meal. Okay, you can ask. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with asking. There's nothing wrong with asking. I've had people ask me. Sometimes I buy them a meal. Sometimes I don't. Depends yeah. on how much money I have. <laughs> Guthmiller responded by telling Demarius to go get a job. <laughs> Guth Miller proceeded inside the restaurant where he stood in the line surrounded by innocent bystanders, some of which were children. Demarius allegedly followed Guth Miller into the McDonald's and pulled out a gun. Demarius then pointed... (laughs) (laughs) That takes some guts. Hey, remember how you told me to get a job? Yeah, well, now I'm robbing you. (laughs) (laughs) That's my full-time job. Now I'm going to get a job. Demarius pointed the weapon at Guth Miller and said the victim had been disrespectful. Demarius proceeds to call Guth Miller a son of a bitch and tells him to fuck off before stowing the firearm back in his waistband and leaving the restaurant. So he got nothing out of it. You know, at that point where he calls me a son of a bitch and tells me to fuck off, I would say, uh, sir, would you like that Big Mac and Happy Meal now? <laughs> I think I eat my words. Yeah. That's a nine millimeter and I'm not, I'm not packing. <laughs> Even in a, a crowded restaurant, you're still backing down, huh? You see that nine millimeter? You're like, get this guy a Big Mac right now. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I'm not. No. No. You'd lose your life over a Big Mac and a Happy Meal. I don't know if I'd lose my life, but I would. I'd be like, you know, man, if you're this hungry, we'll figure something out. You know, and like, because there's a lot of people around you. You know, so I'd I'd plead to his better side. Like, look at all these people. Somebody here can help you. But uh, you you were kind of rude and disrespectful outside. Oh, yeah, no. I'd be rude and disrespectful inside, too. I'd be like, just because we're helping doesn't mean you can't get a job, you hippie. (laughs) (laughs) 
I say that now, and of course, I don't have a nine millimeter pointed at my face. Right, you know what I mean? Right. Like, that nine millimeter changes a lot of things. But see here, yeah, exactly, exactly. But see, here's the deal. I would never look at a guy with a baby in a stroller and say, go get a job. I wouldn't either. Right. I, if a guy said to me, hey, can you buy me a Big Mac and a Happy Meal? And I see a kid sitting in a yeah. stroller. I'd say, are you really that down and out? Yeah. And I'd probably say, hey, follow me. And I probably would buy the Big Mac and the Happy Meal. Because I'm not going to let the kid starve. Right. That's me. If there's a kid involved, I'm not going to let the kid starve. Yeah. And if you're asking me to buy you food, and it's food, I'll buy you food. If it's somebody asking me for 20 bucks and wants to just buy drugs or liquor with it, then no, I'm not going to give it to you. Yeah, I'll, I, I'd probably buy them the food because of the kid. Yeah. But the thing that worries me is this guy already has this nine millimeter there. What does he plan on doing? What if what if it was a ruse of, hey, can you buy me this? And you pull your wallet out to give him some cash and he robs you. I, no, at that point, I tell him, follow me in the store. I'll buy it. I'll buy it for you when I buy my meal. OK. Yeah. It just worries me that this nine, he has this nine millimeter. He knows it's there. What is it there for? You don't need, you know, especially when you have a, a child with you, you don't need a gun. True. Well, let's read the rest of the story and see what happens here. Okay. Uh, police review of security footage corroborated Guff Miller's account of the com- confrontation, which cops say left him in fear of his safety, as well as the safety of the surrounding bystanders. Demarius uh, was arrested on a felony charge of terrorizing with a dangerous weapon. He is locked up in the Burley, uh, Burley County Jail on 10,000 dollars cash bond and has been ordered by a judge to have no contact with Guth Miller. Uh, Demarius's female companion, Eloise flying by is her name. 27 <laughs> flying by what flying by was also <laughs> collared. The seat of her pants. That's right. Uh, was also collared. She's 27 years old. Was also collared outside the McDonald's charged with giving cops a false name flying by. Yeah, not a false name at all. Pleaded guilty Monday to the misdemeanor count and was sentenced to 10 days in jail. Okay, so now wait. She's waiting in the weeds? See, that's that's what the shady thing is. They're trying to rob somebody. Hmm. All right, I might have gotten got then. Yeah, I think they're trying to rob somebody. I think it's, hey, can you buy us this? There's a child here. And they're trying to, to rob somebody. Why else would you have a nine millimeter? And why would she give a fake name if she didn't have warrants? You know what I mean? Yeah, you're right. You're right. Even though if I hear the name Flying Bottom, I think it's a fake name anyways. Yeah, Flying By. Isn't Flying By? Flying By, that's it. (laughs) Flying By the Seat of Your Pants. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, see, and that's that's a sad thing about society days. You can't take people at face value anymore. You see see a father and a child, a single father and a child. Yeah. It's not like it was 10 years ago. Now it's, what does this guy want? Yeah, that's true. It's true. Yeah. And this yeah, is proof yeah. that she was waiting in the wings, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You can't. You can't. So what's sad is, it's, is that child is brought into that life. That child now, if it's their child, if it's their child, now without a mother and father because they're both in jail. Yep. Yeah. You're right. You're right. And doesn't get a happy meal. That's right. <laughs> More. Yeah, it's true. That's the sad part of it all. The kid doesn't get a happy meal. No nuggies for you. No nuggies for you. Uh, more McDonald's shenanigans. Of course. Yeah. We go to Florida this time. 
<laughs> oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can't forget Florida, man. No, we can't. Right. We can't. A uh, Florida man is accused of dowsing a McDonald's manager with hot coffee over a one cent dispute. Oh, come on. It's one cent. <laughs> <laughs> a Florida man has been charged with felony battery weeks after he was seen dowsing a McDonald's to, uh, employee with hot coffee at a drive through window. 64-year-old Elazar Ravello. There you go. Was uh, arrested Monday in Miami Springs, Florida. According to local law enforcement, he was ordered to stay away from the alleged victim, Stephanie Restuccia, as well as the McDonald's where the alleged altercation took place. Surveillance footage dated August 25th and shared on the Miami Springs Police Department's social media pages appears to show Ravello at the drive through window of a McDonald's where he proceeds to have an argument with Restuccia, who is the restaurant's manager. According to reports, Restuccia approached the window after overhearing Ravello, who has been described as a frequent customer, complaining to another employee that he had been overcharged on his breakfast order. As Restuccia reaches out to hand Ravello his coffee, he aggressively slaps the cup back at her before driving off. Police said Restuccia was left with minor burns on her right arm and chest following the incident. Restuccio, who has uh, worked as manager at the McDonald's for four years, described the experience as humiliating. Uh, you don't expect people to do this to you, she told CBS Miami. Uh, I overheard the guy say, oh, you are robbing me? He started to yell. He got offensive. He started calling me names. As soon as I pull out the coffee, he just smashed it and it went all over me. He left at like 100 miles an hour. <laughs> Jeez. So he didn't get anything that he was overcharged for. Right. That would piss me off. I'd make sure I get my food. Right. As to the bill Ravello was allegedly disputing, McDonald's shift manager Naib Garcia told Florida-based NBC affiliate Local 10 what the rest of the crew told me. It was over a penny. According to police records, Ravello was released on $5,000 bond on Tuesday. He's set to be arraigned on November 1st. All for a penny. All for a penny. Yep. Now you don't get any of that good in McDonald's because you're gonna be in prison. That's right. Doesn't help to uh, doesn't help to argue over a penny. That's no, it doesn't. Sure. <laughs> uh, one more food item, if you're ready for this. Oh, I am, and it's also WKRP related. Oh, the cost. It's a of, great show. The cost of turkeys for Canadian Thanksgiving is going up this year. <laughs> Oh yeah, because you gotta they gotta import them, don't they? The quota. Well, no, no, no. They have turkeys in 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 thanks. They have they have turkeys up in Canada. I don't think they're as good as ours, though. <laughs> you don't say that, Bruiser. <laughs> you remember the old Les Nesman line: "As God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly." Yes. As God is my witness, I thought turkeys could drive. <laughs> Is the, I've, I've met a few turkeys that can drive. Is the quote on this one. 1,500 turkeys spill onto an Ontario highway in a Thanksgiving disaster for the ages. <laughs> <laughs> As residents of Ontario prepare for the Thanksgiving long weekend. You know, they don't do Thanksgiving the same weekend we do. No, I know that. Yeah, okay. And okay. some countries don't even celebrate Thanksgiving. That's right. 
and research how to best cook their turkey dinners, 1,500 of said turkeys are needing, or rather heading to slow crash. That was fatal for some. That's right. We lost some turkeys early, Bruiser. Can, now, can we still cook those turkeys or no? Because they weren't slaughtered. I think we can cook them early. Yeah, see? So no harm, no foul. <laughs> no harm, no foul. <laughs> I see what you did there. See? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A tractor trailer carrying the live animals westbound on Highway 401 hit the median and it rolled near Charing Cross Road in Chatham-Kent early on Thursday, resulting in full closure of a portion of the freeway. The accident was so bad that the driver had to be forcibly removed from the cab and airlifted to a local hospital where he's thankfully recovering from non-life-threatening injuries. The surviving birds, meanwhile, were rounded up and sent on their not-so-merry way. <laughs> Authorities on the scene told CTV News that most were unscathed by the incident and that their well-being was a top priority during cleanup efforts. The animals likely were glad to have evaded death on their way to, well, their own death. Their own death. Yeah, I was going to say, like, okay, their well-being's great. You're still slaughtering them. <laughs> The collision was wholly unrelated to the colossal celery spill on another highway in the area on Tuesday, <laughs> though it seems that Thanksgiving table staples. Uh, Maybe Canada should have a Thanksgiving this year. <laughs> like, that's a sign. Like, if there's if there's a trailer that flips over because of the good old cranberry sauce, like, yeah, your, your Thanksgiving's done. <laughs> Maybe. Like, there was a colossal celery spill on another highway in the area on Tuesday, although it seems that Thanksgiving table staples are not having the best luck getting to plates this year. Naturally, people are relating the news back to the viral 120, wow, $120 turkey headline from earlier this week as they struggled to be thankful for this holiday during the nation's ongoing cost of living crisis. Wait, it's $120 for a turkey? How big was that turkey? Well, you got to remember that things are a little bit... How, how does the exchange rate go there? It's three quarters of... Isn't it three... What is it? I don't know. They have fake Monopoly money. <laughs> they don't have fake Monopoly money. I don't remember it's how plastic. they... plastic. Their money's plastic. No, no. I, or loonies and toonies. <laughs> it's not... It's um. I'm trying to remember, <laughs> I love how you're trying to figure it out. I'm, I'm trying like, to figure out. Hold on, it's fake money. Let me look, let me let me look it up here real quick. There's it's, no uh, conversion. It's fake money. We have real money. They have fake money. Use a debit card. <laughs> Still, one hundred and twenty dollars okay, for so a turkey. It's, so it's one U.S. dollar to one point three six Canadian dollars right now. So one hundred and twenty dollars would be what? So okay, so. It, Wow, so it's still like $90 for a turkey? Yeah. How big is that turkey? Oh. That's got to be like an 18 to 25 pound turkey then. I was going to say, yeah, what? We're at $5 a pound, right? If it's 20 about uh, let's $4. see. Here. $4, $4, 4 I got a, a calculator pound. here. Let me look. That actually ain't that bad. So let me see here. If you break it down... Let's say it's an 18-pound turkey, and it was 90 bucks. That's $5 a pound. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, it's expensive, but I can see, you know, I don't know who would buy that, but hey. Somebody who's really desperate to not want tur <laughs> turkey loaf. Somebody, somebody Canadian. <laughs> but, wow, that that's expensive. That is. 
Better be a really good turkey, not one that's dead on a freeway. So a Canadian dollar is a dollar thirty-six, according to. So are those turkeys discounted then because they were in an accident? <laughs> yes, they're disabled turkeys, and you get them for cheaper. No, I yeah, like so. you're supposed to call, like you know, you will buy a car. You, you have the Carfax. Do we have like a, a tur- know, turkey a, fax? A turkey fax. <laughs> my, my turkey's been in an accident. Probably not. No. <laughs> what do you say? Like, you've got a broken wing. Do I get cheaper? Huh? <laughs> Probably. Is this a scratch and dent sale with these turkeys? <laughs> no. <laughs> Are you sure? Scratch and dent. Tur- yeah, you get you get you get it for two and a half dollars a pound because it's a disabled turkey. <laughs> it shows up with its own little wheelchair. <laughs> well, it's dead. It should be dead. I'm not killing it. <laughs> oh, would it be cheaper though if I killed it? Let's send me that little wheelchair guy. I don't think <laughs> they kill have them. kill your own turkeys. You have pick your own lobster. Why can't you kill your own turkey? <laughs> because that's different. I don't think they give you an axe and have you go out back and take your own. It's not like you're well, picking your own Christmas tree. Easy cleanup for this accident. You just get a bunch of Canadians out there with axes and shotguns. Go clean up the freeway. <laughs> you get a free turkey out of it. <laughs> I don't think it's that easy, Bruiser. That's how I'd do it. Mm-hmm. That's the American way. <laughs> that's why you're not living in Canada. Exactly. They won't let me kill and clean my own turkey. <laughs> Jesus. It would take days to get rid of all that turkey on the highway if you did it that way. But all your people are happy. Make sure they clean up one lane so you can get traffic going by. <laughs> You can't do that. They probably had just some animal control people come out, round up the turkeys, and put them back in the truck. Probably. There are people from the company. That's the Canadian way. (laughs) It's faster (laughs) that way. (laughs) Just have random people out there with axes chasing turkeys around trying to get a turkey for Thanksgiving. Oh, they're not going to go far. They were just in an accident. They're rambled. They're all in shell shock. Some of them are already (laughs) dead. They're shell shocked. (laughs) They're running around looking for lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> Do you need an injury alert? <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's nothing like that. <clears throat> Sir, can you please give us your testimony? <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I still think my idea is good. <laughs> it would take days to get turkeys out the highway. I almost did. I, did I tell you, I almost hit two turkeys the other day. Really? Yeah. I was on my way to go see the exorcist. So now do you get to keep them if you hit them? Uh, no. 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 If you hit a turkey here in Minnesota, they're wild turkeys. They're, they're protected, I think. Okay. Because we have turkeys in my subdivision. If I can keep one for Thanksgiving, I might just. You know, you don't want to you you don't want to eat a wild turkey here. Wild turkey's good, man. Mm-hmm. Hundred proof wild turkey. Whew. Well, no, 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 that'll, no, that'll no, warm no, you not up. a bottle of wild turkey. <laughs> God, if I hit a bottle of wild turkey here, I'm keeping it, of course. Wait, what? What's the difference between wild turkey and turkey you eat? Uh, the, the wild turkey around here is a little gamier. Oh, I like gamey. Oh no, it's really gamey. Like it's yeah. No, no. The the stuff that's running around the neighborhood chasing kids is not not good stuff. No, no, no. Okay, no. Maybe I won't hit one then. 
No, it's not. It's not that. It's not that good. Like I wouldn't hit the big ones. I hit small ones. Just the Mrs. Bruiser and I. <laughs> you want a tender? Is that what you're saying? You, you want more tender <laughs> Probably, turkeys? Yeah. You have a smaller one. Uh, this discussion's going nowhere. Let's go. Let's move on. Uh, this guy is going to make the Dumb Crime Stupid Criminals Hall of Fame. Oh, good. I love Hall of Famers. Yep. This is going to rank right up there with Lady that hit the other lady with her eight, was it four pounds of ground beef? <laughs> oh, 10 pounds. 10 pounds of, 10 pounds, yeah, 10 yep. pounds of ground beef in a tube. Yeah, I got pulled over for DUI in Walmart riding on the personal shopper thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's that too. Uh, this Pennsylvania man was riding a tractor and got arrested for his second DUI 17 minutes after his release from his first DUI arrest. <laughs> All right, you know, I'll see you in a bit. <laughs> That's right. He uh, he is a go-getter. Yes, he is. He is motivated. He has a mission. Uh, we go to Lancaster. <laughs> Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. I can talk today. I can. A man operating a farm vehicle in Pennsylvania was arrested and accused of driving under the influence just 17 minutes after he was released from custody for the very same thing. I hope it was by the same police. <laughs> Said You were free to go. Okay. <laughs> what are you doing? You can't do that. We just arrested you for that. I can go over one. <laughs> uh, the driver identified as a 49-year-old man from Lancaster was first taken into custody on the evening of September 16th after Pennsylvania State Police says he tried to flee the scene of a crash in a 1974 International Harvester 4000 series. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good year. It is a good year. Uh, according to the crash report, the International Harvester and a 2011 Toyota RAV4 were at a stop sign when the farm vehicle backed into the SUV and tried to leave the area. The driver of the RAV4 followed behind, honking, trying to get the tractor operator's attention, police said. Oh, that would be a real low-speed chase. Yeah, it would. And, and it was. Uh, the driver of the tractor later admitted to police that he had been drinking before getting behind the wheel. The suspect was arrested, processed, and released, police said, but he didn't give officers much time to miss him. Approximately 17 minutes after being released from custody, the, it says the actor was found to be operating a tractor yet again on the, ro on the roadway and was placed into custody for a second DUI. So he gets out of jail, he's sober at this point, finds the hidden flask that he had stuffed away in the tractor, slams that, gets arrested again. Good for you. Bravo. Yep. There you go. The only thing that would make the story better is if he was naked. That's right. That's right. Uh, Pennsylvania State Police in Lancaster are investigating. No one inside the RAV4, including a two-year-old passenger, reported any injuries after the crash. The vehicle did have moderate damage to the front end, according to the accident report. So, kids, let's learn a lesson here. Don't ever let anybody tell you you can't drive your tractor drunk. <laughs> and if they do tell you, just go out and do it again. That's right. You, you show them. All right, we are at our not safe for work section of the program. Not like finding out two two people can't have sex during their marriage when it's falling apart isn't not safe for work. <laughs> but we're at the not safe for work part of our program. If uh, you have the youngins around, which I don't know why you're listening to this program while you have youngins around, if you're at work 
and you don't want the boss to hear you don't want people around you to hear uh turn your turn your radio down or put in your headphones or your earbuds or whatever you're listening to you have until five four three two one all right our first story is back in las vegas of course all right definitely not safe for work right uh, where a misunderstanding happens after a passenger passes gas on a Las Vegas bus and it leads to a shooting. <laughs> you ever had somebody fart so hard and so nasty that you want to shoot them, Bruiser? No, but I've, I've released a couple on some airplanes. <laughs> Has it been that bad that somebody wanted to shoot you? Uh, I'm assuming somebody would. I've gotten out of the bathroom a couple times after a weekend of drinking and Felt bad for the fellow passengers. <laughs> a misunderstanding over giggling after a passenger on a Las Vegas bus passed gas led to a shooting in May and a man's arrest last month. The 8 News Now investigators have learned 25-year-old Dominic Johnson, a convicted felon, was charged with attempted murder and battery, among other charges connected to the May 3, 2023 shooting. Police in Eudora, Arkansas, arrested Johnson on September 16th he was booked into the Clark County Detention Center on Sunday. Wait, it happened in May and they didn't arrest him until September? Did well, take that long to clear out from the fart? That had a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. That was a stinky fart if it took that many months before they arrest the guy. It was one of those hangers. You know what I'm talking about? Exactly. Like, you, you know what, Captain? <clears throat> uh, we'd really like to get the footage from that bus, but none of us are going on there yet. Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> I think that guy had Popeye's. Yeah, that guy's got some gastrointestinal problems. Yeah, that's a red beans and rice fart right there. I'm surprised the guy shot the gun. Could have lit the whole bus on fire. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That whole bus was going up. Uh, Johnson was a passenger on the RTC bus when it stopped around 2.30 p.m. on Eastern Avenue near Poppy Lane, documents said. Video shows a person whom police identified as Johnson standing up in the back of the bus, drawing a gun from his waistband and pointing it at another passenger. Johnson then fired four rounds at the passenger before he ran off the bus. The victim sustained wounds to his hand, stomach, and leg. Shortly after the shooting, police searched a nearby apartment where witnesses saw the suspect running toward. Uh, police later identified the shooting victim who told them he and his girlfriend were on the bus and were laughing about a smell when he remembered hearing a loud pop. That wasn't his ass. <laughs> Do you think when he got shot, his last words were, dude, it was her, not me? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> the victim told police he never spoke with Johnson and had no confrontation with him and was flabbergasted it would have caused Johnson to target him in such a violent manner. In surveillance video, Johnson appears to mind his own business for about 10 minutes, according to police. At one point, the victim and his girlfriend can be heard laughing about the flatulence, police said. <laughs> Johnson appears in the video looking at them while he scratched his head. Johnson appears to become more irritated at the laughing and after several minutes pulled the gun and fired the shots. I bet you it was Johnson that farted. If you and he's like, you're making fun of my fart? Like, why are you guys making fun of my fart? Yep. That was a good fart. I should be getting high fives right now, not being made fun of. That's right. If you smelt it, you're going to be dealt it. You know what yeah, I'm saying? This is this is one of those farts that needs to be in a museum, not laughed at. That's right. It's a Picasso. <laughs> 
Police later matched a prior booking photo and a social media profile of Johnson. According to police, police also served a search warrant at Johnson's home, finding a gun, ammunition, and clothing and some wet wipes, I bet. Um, <laughs> Beans. <laughs> and some beans. Uh, Johnson was barred from having a gun on a prior grand larceny of, of a firearm charge. Pro temp judge Nancy Estery set bail at $270,000 during a hearing on Tuesday. That's an expensive fart. <laughs> yeah, it is. You can't eat that much and fart. The most my farts ever cost is whatever a pair of pants cost. Yeah, yeah. Or you know, a good pair of underwear. underwear. Yeah. A uh, preliminary hearing was scheduled for October 17th. The May shooting followed several high-profile incidents of violence on RTC buses, including a man's murder in February. Uh, I would just think open a window. <laughs> That's probably your best uh, bet. Here's, or just get off at the next stop. Here's the literal shooter. As we, he uh, looks like he's still smelling the fart. He does, doesn't he? He looks like he's got a, a whiff of one like, right in the nostrils. Like, I know he's trying to be all gangsta, but it's like, no, nah, dude, you just smelled another fart. Yeah, that's right. He's got the aromatic scent in his nose as we speak. <laughs> Speaking of things that come out of the old anal cavity, uh, we go here to Minneapolis where a box of giraffe poop is seized at MSP Airport. Oh, you can't fly with giraffe poop? I thought you could. No, it's one of those things. More than three ounces. <laughs> <laughs> so they didn't separate it into separate containers like yeah. you're supposed to. Yeah, you got to uh, put it in those. put it in a box. And you got to put it in those bottles. <laughs> they just put it in a box and sent it to the x-ray. A woman was stopped at the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport for attempting to bring giraffe poop into the country to make a necklace. Well... <laughs> Hey, lady, I'm sure wherever you got that giraffe poop, you can probably get it in America, too. Well, I don't know. You try and break into the giraffe cage to grab the, grab the shit. <laughs> I just go by the monkeys so they throw it to me. Oh, that's true. Okay. Uh, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection said in a press release on Thursday that a woman flying from Kenya to MSP on September 29th was stopped in customs after declaring to have giraffe poop. <laughs> Hey, at least she declared it. She didn't try to hide it. Yeah. What's this? A box of whoo? That's my shit. That's my giraffe shit. That's giraffe. Come make a necklace. I have giraffe you want poop. Some, come get it. I'm going to make you a necklace. Border agents searched the woman's belongings and found a small box with over a dozen pieces of giraffe poop and a shell. Because you got some of some of it's got to be pretty. She's like, what? I'm shipping it for Colaguard. Leave me alone. <laughs> The woman said she planned to make a necklace from the droppings that she got while abroad and had previously used moose feces at her house in Iowa. This explains everything. <laughs> now, I've heard of the moose poop being made in the stuff. There's a TV show for a little bit on that. But giraffe poop? Come on. There was a TV series about it? Yeah, there's a TV show about a woman who turned moose poop into, like, a big productive business. What? And she makes, like, jewelry, clocks, uh, uh, just different souvenirs with this poop. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I don't remember what it was called. It was on, um, it was either on A&E or Discovery for a little bit. 
There's a real danger with bringing fecal matter into the U.S., said LaFonda D. Sutton Burke, CBP Director, Field Operations, Chicago Field Office, in a statement. If this person had entered the U.S. and had not declared these items, there's a high possibility a person could have contracted a disease from this jewelry and developed serious health issues. CBP says animal feces from Kenya can be affected by African swine fever, classical swine fever, Newcastle disease, foot and mouth disease, and swine vesicular disease. Agriculture specialist seized the poop and destroyed it. <laughs> per the U.S. Department of Agriculture Destruction destroy Protocol. destroy it, you mean flushed it? <laughs> no, because then it goes in the sewer and into the water. Oh, that's true. You kill it with fire. <laughs> They had a poop barbecue. I'm in. Let's go. <laughs> what about big giraffe poop? Oh, giraffe poop looks like rabbit poop, doesn't it? I don't know. That's a big ass it's coming out of. <laughs> yeah. I think giraffe poop is like rabbit poop. I think it's little pellets, like goats and rabbits. Uh, wait a minute. I think I have a picture of it here. Let me see. Yeah, I got a picture of it right here. That's what it looks like compared to a Sharpie. Yeah, see, it looks like pellets. It does look like anal beads, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like little baseballs. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, maybe Pablo, Pablo Lopez can throw one of those at the Astros. <laughs> yeah. That's a box of shit. It's a box of shit. Isn't that fun? Yeah. Actually, I would have just claimed it as mine. Oh, that's mine. Oh, that's mine. <clears throat> Speaking of shitting and peeing in public... <laughs> We're just going to go down that rabbit hole today. Okay. Welcome to St. Louis, where you can do it on the street. Oh, of course you can. I've I've actually pissed in St. Louis streets. Well, you did it illegally until now. Oh, it's legal now? If you don't have a home. Ah, uh, okay. Lawmakers in St. Louis, Missouri, are debating a bill that would exempt homeless individuals from laws against public urination and defecation. That according to, <laughs> I can't even say it. That according to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. So instead of us figuring out how to take care of the homeless problem, like, you know, giving these people rooms or the ability to get a job and help them get on their feet. No, we're just going to allow them to piss and shit in the street. Tells you how much. Why, why leave? You know, look at that. You have it all now. Tells you how much St. Louis loves their city. Oh, God. The bill was introduced Friday by Alder, Aldermanic President Megan Green and Alderwoman Alicia Sunmere, Sunnier, I'm trying to get the names right, of uh, Tower Grove East, who argue that exceptions are needed given the low number of public restrooms in the city. <laughs> so why not get more public restrooms? You know how they came up with this? They were leaving a bar one night, and they both had to piss. Mm -hmm. But the bar was closed. Mm -hmm. So they ran over into the alley. And they're like, oh, we can, we can do it here. There's no public restroom. And they saw a homeless man who was doing the same thing. They're like, we can pass this bill. <laughs> this is how we do it. We're going to help you, old old, old homeless man that's peeing in an alley. You're, you're pretty close. You ready for this? <laughs> Here is the justification. After every sporting event, after Mardi Gras, we see other people engaging in public urination, Green said at a news conference. But enforcing those laws against that segment of population is not the same as the enforcement we see over our unhoused population. 
Wait, Mardi Gras? They celebrate Mardi Gras? They never celebrated Mardi Gras while I was there. That's a New Orleans thing. Right. Right. Uh, Sunnier added that advocates for the unhoused pointed out to her that there are few public restrooms in the city. Moreover, she said businesses don't want them to use their bathrooms. Thank you, Starbucks. <laughs> yes. The provision, which wasn't in a similar Bill of Rights for the homeless measure that failed at the board last year, drew sharp criticism Friday from two opponents of the legislation. What are we doing, Alderwoman Pam Boyd of Walnut Park West said in an interview. This is not a third world country. This is St. Louis, Missouri. That's so disrespectful to us as a community. That's unhealthy. It's what I don't think they realize is that that's a public health issue. Yeah. Now, urination, not necessarily. Urine is sterile. But feces is. Feces is not. Yeah, that's why if you go to the India and stuff like that, you see people with certain diseases that have been around for a while, it's because their sewage is literally in the streets. That's right. <clears throat> um, Plus, what are they going to wipe with? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to go there. Build but, more but, restrooms. Well, it, it's a matter of people making their restrooms available. That's, uh, you know, I mean. Or, you know what? There's got to be a ported potty place out there that's willing to make yes. something with the city. Like, yeah. hey, we'll do a contract. We'll give you 100 porta potties yeah. for X amount of dollars for this many years. And then right. that porta potty company has, okay, for the next few years, we have this much money coming in from, from the city. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, do it at a, di at a severe discount, but but make them available. Or, exactly. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. There's some other questions that are brought up by different aldermen, older women. Um, there's some unrealistic expectations here. <laughs> One alderman, Tom Oldenburg of St. Louis, says homeless people that need to relieve themselves should just go to a shelter. I don't think he realizes that shelters aren't on every block. Well, and also too, shelters, especially during the wintertime, get overrun. That's right. Um, Come to think of it, like, can you think of a homeless shelter off the top of your head? Yeah, I know of a few of them, yeah. I'm only because my mom worked with, um, with okay. uh, marginalized uh, populations but yeah I, I knew a few back in wisconsin because again my my dad worked with them mm -hmm. but out here in north carolina i can't i can tell you where a bunch of churches are but i can't tell you if they're homeless shelters and see the the churches fill in where there are not uh urban areas so yeah. so the churches fill in where and, and they do amazing work mm -hmm. um but where, where you don't have urban populations where you're in suburban or, or rural areas, the churches fill in for where there are, are not, okay. uh, not those, those facilities. Okay. But in a big city like St. Louis, Missouri, you, you have to, there's a reason it's called a community. Yeah. Right. I mean, you have to look after one another to a point. You can't be isolationist. I know. If, if we have homeless people listening to our podcast, which would be weird, but if they are, you can go to a Planet Fitness if you're homeless, and they'll they'll give you time in their showers and their restrooms. You can't work out, but you can go and relax yeah. for a little bit. You just have to 
prove you're homeless or get a membership or whatever. But I know Planet Fitness works with the homeless community. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in, in places up by you and stuff where it gets real cold in the wintertime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, um, I think YMCA's do the same. Yes. Yeah. And there, yeah, there, there are organizations out there that will help you if you're homeless and, and they are, but there, it's a two way street here, Bruiser. And it's, it's this, there are members of the, the homeless community that, that refuse that help. Um, and there's sometimes it's due to mental illness. Sometimes it's due to a mistrust of some of these organizations because some of these organizations do try to get you into that system yeah. and want to keep you in that system. Uh, and they they don't want that. They want to be truly free and on their own. And mm-hmm. and that that's kind of that romanticism of the. Uh, I'm going to use a word here that might be a little avant-garde or out of style but the hobo lifestyle the the you know the wanting the gypsy lifestyle the gypsy lifestyle yeah the the wanting to be out on the, out the, the wanderer lifestyle. yeah the wanderer yeah. lifestyle right um it's not necessarily a mental illness thing it's just a you know i i don't want they're wanting to be loners they're wanting to be out on their own free off the grid um and just not wanting to be part of society and, yeah I, and, I have a guy i went to high school with that he currently does that he makes a living doing something, but he re- he chooses to live on the streets. Yeah, yeah. So he he eats and he's very well clothed and he's bathed and I forget what he does, but uh, he he chooses because he has no bills in his name. Um, I think he has a cell phone so he can be tracked and keep in contact. But last time I spoke to him. God, it was December of last year. Mm-hmm. And I, you know how everything is always, I'm doing great, you know, living my life the way I want to live. Nobody can tell me no. I'm like, okay. He hasn't paid taxes in so long because he, he doesn't need to claim them. Yeah. It's a very hard life, though. I, I have a yeah. I have a cousin. He Because he, uh, he had contracted the, that head, throat, foot, whatever, the foot, nose, that disease. Yeah, yeah. Um, he had he had contract gotten that, and I think he had also gotten hepatitis A. Oh my God! Or B from somewhere. Yeah. My, and he uh, doesn't have health care because he doesn't have a job, so he he's he's goes in the free clinics and stuff. But he, he you can't. He doesn't want to. He's he's. I don't know if it's mental illness. I don't know if it's the way he was raised, but he doesn't want the government to keep track of him. Is what it is. That's yeah. what it comes down. To. Yeah. See, so he, he just he doesn't trust the government. I have a cousin that's uh, homeless. Chooses to be homeless. He, yeah. he And yeah, there there's a there's a titch of mental illness there. Um, but I think he's there is with him too. Yeah, it's he's the same way. He, he wants to live off the grid. Doesn't want to you know. Doesn't want to have to answer anybody. He he works odd jobs. Um, yep. Lives in an army like tent. a handyman, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or or factory job for a while, you know, or or day jobs or whatever, or day laborer yeah. jobs. Um, but he he'll he he'll hunt his own food. He'll you know, I mean, he'll do whatever he has to do. I mean, he'll he'll shop at a grocery store too. But um, you know, but he'll he'll literally year round work. Uh, work uh, at, at, at just odd jobs and, and live outside year round too. Yeah. Um, but he's got an all weather tent. I mean, that's know. what he's got. And he, he, he ventures between, I think he said Minnesota, 
all the way down to Florida. Yeah. And yeah. all the states in between. And he's been out in California. He's been in Texas. And yeah. He has a little schedule that he follows. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and just roams, roams the country. Yep. But it's a, it's extremely hard on the body, and you have to know that that lifestyle can get you in trouble in different ways. It can get you in trouble not only with the law; it can get you in trouble with criminals. It can get you in trouble uh, health wise, like you just mentioned. Um, well, and he was telling me too, there's rules within these homeless camps. When yes. you see these homeless camps, you think it's all just people living under there. No, there's one guy or girl who's in charge of the camp and you have to follow their rules or you'll be kicked out. Right. Right. He was telling me all about that. I'm like, really? I go, so you're leaving our government to follow this essential homeless government. And he says, I trust them more than I trust, you know, he, he again, he doesn't trust the government, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a different life. It's a different it life. Is. Yeah. It, it's not a life for me. I mean, I like being on no. the road and stuff, but I also like having a house and puppies and stuff I can come home yeah. to. Yeah. I like health insurance. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's certain luxuries to living uh, the way we live in America, you know? Yeah. So, it, but it, everybody, that, that's a beautiful thing about America. Everybody has a choice on how they want to live. Yep. So that's, that's, that's as long as you're not hurting anybody. That's right. That's right. So again, St. Louis, listen to us, porta potties. Yeah, porta potties. Yeah, you yeah. could literally make a porta potty renter's dream by giving them a five-year contract for a hundred porta potties. Yes. Yeah. You know, and then that's that could be a guy's literally a, one guy's job is hey, you just service the public porta potties. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, next story, again in Minneapolis, <laughs> <laughs> and I asked myself, why did I never get pulled over by this cop? <clears throat> I never get this kind of luck, Bruiser. A cop is under investigation for having an OnlyFans account after a guy she pulled over said he was a subscriber. Oh. <laughs> that would be interesting. Yeah. Like, here, here's your ticket and here's my OnlyFans link. <laughs> uh, here's the highlights. A man was pulled over by a police officer, said he recognized her from OnlyFans. He recalled that he said to the cop, you can't arrest me no more. I've seen your private parts. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't get, that's not a get out of free jail card, dude. <laughs> no, uh, the Minneapolis police department is now investigating if the officer violated any conduct policies. The Minneapolis police department is investigating an officer after a man she pulled over, recognized her from her OnlyFans account. This according to Fox nine, the officer who works in the city's fourth precinct and whom Fox nine did not identify by name. Damn it. Um, We wanted to see the OnlyFans. That's right. Has an OnlyFans page showing pornographic photos. I can't even say it. I'm so shocked. (laughs) And videos for a monthly fee. Over the weekend, a driver who was pulled over during a traffic stop uh, realized after 10 minutes of talking with the officer that he had been subscribed to her OnlyFans page for five months. Well, good for him. Yeah. Well, you're And I'm sure she's thankful. I'm sure. Uh, The driver told Fox 9 that he said to the police officer, you can't arrest me no more. I've seen your private parts. That's very (laughs) menacing. Yeah. He also said that he couldn't respect her or the precinct she works for after seeing the videos. Oh, come on, dude. Oh, come on. Just, you're getting arrested, dude. Uh, Whether the officer did anything in breach of her employer's code of conduct by having an OnlyFans side hustle is now being investigated. Well, there was that teacher that did the OnlyFans, and it wasn't, she didn't get fired because she had the OnlyFans. She got fired because one of the videos was filmed in her classroom. <laughs> that's right. That's right. According to the Minnesota Law Enforcement Code of Ethics, officers keep their private lives 
unsullied as an example to all. But she's not doing anything illegal. It's perfectly OnlyFans is perfectly legal. As long as she's not doing it in her her government issued uniform, government issued car. But there is a moral clause. See, but it's not breaking the law. It's not breaking the law, but again, moral clause goes beyond. So it, what if moral? So how come? How, so going along the moral clause, mm-hmm. how come I can't get pulled over and go, "Hey, I was at a bar last night and you were drunk." Well, now see, moral clause holds up the standards of the community. So if you were drunk in a bar, well, bars are perfectly acceptable in the community. So that that doesn't count. So OnlyFans isn't acceptable in the community. It's not widely accepted by the community. You, you See, don't. I, I disagree with that moral clause thing because what's moral? You know, I think that comes down to the person setting the morals. You know, like I have no problem with people having an OnlyFans. Good, you're, I don't you're subsidizing I, your. I don't your, either. You know? But that's not the. They would. They would contend. Again, the, the Minneapolis Police Department. I think I, I'm not saying we'll read the rest of the story here, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. I'll and I'll tell you uh, where they're coming down on this. Minneapolis Police Department did not immediately respond to insiders' request for comment on whether having an OnlyFans page would violate this. In a statement pr- provided to Fox Nine. The department said we take any allegations of policy violations seriously and the chief has ordered an investigation. The police department also did not respond to insiders request for comment on the status of the investigation. A spokesperson for the city's mayor, Jacob Fry, said in a statement that it is ultimately up to the police chief to determine if there are any violations, but that the mayor has no issue with her having nude pictures behind a paywall per Fox 9. So it's okay with the mayor. Yeah. Okay. As long as I think it should be okay with everybody, as long as she doesn't have it in uniform in the police car in the city hall, and you know what I mean. Like if it's in her, the privacy of her own photo shoots in her house or the hotel or boyfriend's house, whatever, cool. But as soon as she is with the government stuff or she's on the clock taking these pictures, now she's breaking the law. It's just like having a social media pitch. A little different, though, and, and follow me here. When this and this guy who got pulled over actually was pretty smart. He used some important words here. I have no respect for you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Very smart. Yep. And that he couldn't have respect for the department based on what she did on the side. These are important words, and I'll tell you why. Because at that point, she is a representation of the police department. Correct. And in that phrase, and allow me to grab the phrase again from the article. It says, um, again, there's the morals clause, which says that you may not unsully... or. Uh, uh, where is it again? It is. Uh, it basically says that uh, here it is. Uh, according to the Minnesota Law Enforcement Code of Ethics, officers must keep their private life unsullied as an example to all. In other words, nothing that would tarnish the office, 
even and though because he said I lost respect, that's tarnishing the office. That is. Yeah. So even though he is doing quote unquote wrong behavior, even though he is subscribed to her OnlyFans, even though he is in the wrong, mm-hmm. he actually was brilliant in what he said. Uh, He's probably going to end up getting her fired. Do you think so? Yep. I think she'll get suspended to shut down the OnlyFans. At least that. At least yeah. that. But yeah. unfortunately, I think the police chief, I'll tell you why it's probably going to end up in her, unfortunately, getting fired. Because the Minneapolis Police Department has been in a bad way recently. And the new, well, poli- the new yeah. police chief who's been brought in has been brought in no nonsense from the East Coast. And he's been doing everything he can to clean up the Minneapolis Police Department and to make things right with the community. So and she'll be an example. She has to be. And uh, he he's done a very good job at, at, at getting the police department turned around. But this... He, he can't have any strikes against him. Yeah. And, and recently they, they um, what's a good way of putting this? Um, he, he's, he's, he's dodged a lot of bullets. We'll put it that way. And, and he's, he's cleaned up a lot of things. So he's basically going to take the temperature of the room, see what it is. <clears throat> yep. And then. And act accordingly. If anything, suspend her, make her get rid of it. But probably. Hey, you're done. Yeah, Sorry. He's no hard feelings. Right. Yep. Come back in a year. Maybe. You know. Yeah. Come back when everything boils down. Yep. But you know what? The media has a long memory. Oh, yeah, it does. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, she could. She could probably, I'm surprised they didn't release her name. Well, that's probably why. Um, yeah. They probably aren't releasing the name so that she can get another job in another community. And it'll eventually come out when the <clears throat> when the investigation is made public. Yeah, yeah. But by then, mainstream media is going to be done with it. Yeah, exactly. So there you go. Our final story today, Bruiser. (laughs) I can't believe I'm going to read this. (laughs) The joke is over. Harry Dick Road namesake tells sign thieves, in other words, quit stealing my sign. (laughs) That's right. Harry Dick Road is named after somebody. He's probably got a real hairy dick. And he wants people to stop stealing his sign. <laughs> I just don't understand why they're stealing it. <laughs> here's here's actually what the sign looks like, and I would gladly steal that sign and hang it in I my would studio. That yeah. would totally be fit perfectly in my house. Yeah, that is a hysterical sign. Uh, tired of replacing stolen signs several times a year, Township resolves to rename the road. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Dick gets the joke, Bruiser. He just doesn't think it's that funny anymore, and he'd like the thieves to stop stealing, stealing the road sign that bears his name, and he'd like them to grow up. And, and he's, he wants it named now after his wife, you know, voluptuous Vanessa. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All I want is some peace and quiet, he told the CBC recently from his home on Harry Dick Road near Eganville, Ontario. About this guy's name is really Harry Dick. His parents hated him. Well, well, <laughs> the road's named after him. That means his name is Harry Dick. The, his parents hated him. There's, there's more. 
Okay, okay. Uh, Eganville, Ontario is about 125 kilometers west of down, downtown Ottawa. Uh, oh, Canadian. Okay, I got it. Uh, Dick, whose real name is John Henry, but he's gone by Harry his entire life. Well, you don't like the uh, mythical legend of John Henry? He's he, a very strong man. He was a strong man, but Harry Dick was bigger, so he... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, he he chose to go by Harry. I don't know. He chose to go okay. by Dick. Harry Dick. He loves Harry Dick. Where so, okay, I can see where he's getting Harry because of Henry. But where's he getting Dick from? Anybody who'll give it to him. <laughs> <laughs> we know where his wife voluptuous Vanessa's getting it. Yep. <clears throat> So, Dick, his real name is John Henry, but he goes by Harry, and he has his whole life, was born on the rural property. And in 1957, he gave his wife Lois, not voluptuous Vanessa, uh, he and his wife Lois moved into one of the three houses at the end of the 800-meter gravel drive. They've lived there ever since. The family, yeah, the family has called this place home for a century, five generations. It's the house of Dick's. Dick's grandson now lives next door and runs a business. Oh, little Dick. And uh, runs a business. His name's Bald. And and runs a business in town with his wife. It's a vasectomy business. Their collective memory is a bit foggy on exactly when Harry Dick Road got its name. But it's believed to have been in the 1980s or 90s when 911 emergency service arrived in the region. Uh-huh. When they needed to name it something in order to yeah. come out. The si- sign itself has been stolen four times a year. Well, be I bet. That's a prized possession right there. That's right. Nobody asked us what to name the road. It was just named Lois Dick told CBS <laughs> or CBC rather. <laughs> Lois Dick. Can't make that up. And so Harry Dick Road. Well, people think that's very, very, very funny. And the signs started to disappear, Harry said. They've been disappearing at a rate of three or four times a year ever since, she said. In an email to CBC, the township's CAO confirmed the signs are stolen about four times a year, but couldn't provide the replacement cost. Whatever the cost of the sign, they probably have a ton of them. They, they probably are manufacturing them in bulk now. I was going to say, they had to have known. Like, this is going to be a stolen thing. This is, this is a hairy dick. <laughs> like, who doesn't like stealing hairy dick? <laughs> and hanging it on their wall. That's right. <laughs> I wonder if uh, the guy who manufactures these signs. Yeah. I wonder if he's been... Groomed for Harry Dick. <clears throat> you know what? He's probably surrounded by Harry Dick signs. <laughs> it's just like if you get that, you're a sign maker, right? You're a sign maker. Like yeah. here, here we go. Cruiser the sign maker, and you get yeah. an invoice. Yeah. <laughs> it says Harry Dick, but it says one. You're like, no, I'm making a ton of these because <laughs> one's going to me. I'm shipping one off to my family for Christmas. <laughs> my kids get one. <laughs> Here I am, Harry Dick, just staring me in the face. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? I need a lot of Harry Dick in my life. Uh, yeah. 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 There's a road for it. Yeah. 
What you got to do is you got to go up there to, to uh, Harry Dick. <laughs> do a big U-turn. Come on back. In and out. In and out on Harry Dick Road. In and out. In and out. In and out. Soon you'll come up to the house. <laughs> then come in the door. You know, what the, you know what the cross street is, right? What's that? Bald pussy. <laughs> oh, no. Come on. <laughs> it's actually pussy galore road. <clears throat> there it is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the township of Bonshare Valley has tried greasing the steel pole to deter thieves. <laughs> oh, God. They took from the Philadelphia they did. Uh, police. Yeah. And has reinforced the concrete at the base to prevent people from ripping out the whole thing. Oh, I hate when I rip out my hairy dick. At a recent meeting, the township council even raised the possibility of wielding the sign to it, or welding the sign, not wielding it, uh, welding the sign to its post. So every four years they raise Harry Dick, huh? <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> uh, the Dick said their grandson has considered electrifying the pole with a solar panel and once installed a camera to catch the thieves in the act. By the way, <laughs> the camera was stolen too. <laughs> Nobody wants to film that hairy dick. <laughs> this next part just says a bunch of idiots. Are you ready for this? Oh, yeah. Lois Dick says, I think they're a bunch of idiots, but they're very smart. They don't get caught, but what can they do with these signs? Display uh, them! Exactly. Have you nothing better to do? I'd be really ashamed of my children or grandchildren if I thought they were doing something as idiotic as that. I guarantee you their parents don't know. Or their kids that live on their own, in a, their bachelors that live in a bachelor pad. Yeah, they got it hanging yeah. on the wall. Yeah. And Come do some sex on the beach shots underneath our hairy dick sign. <laughs> <laughs> you have a slippery nipple? Cool. Come to Harry Dick Drive. Harry Dick Road. <laughs> Every party house in Ottawa has a Harry Dick Road sign. I'm telling exactly. you that right now. There's a fraternity out there that literally has a whole room of Harry Dicks. <laughs> <sighs> Faced with the cost and inconvenience of constantly replacing the sign, the township got in touch with some of the Dick's relatives and resolved. <laughs> <laughs> And resolved last month to rename. Do you know what the relative's name's last name is? What's that? Testicles. <laughs> Sack. Uh, right around the corner. Yeah. But watch out, the guy in the backyard, the real asshole. <laughs> you know who's in between them? Who's that? The taints. <laughs> so they got a hold of the dick's relatives. <laughs> And resolved last month to rename Harry Dick Road. Oh, this is going to be great. I'm all for it. It'll just make life easier, and I'm sure that they can find a perfectly appropriate name. Although, I think having a road named after you is so lovely, and it's kind of sad, said Mayor Jennifer Murphy during a township meeting, a township committee meeting on September 5th. Uh, Jennifer doesn't, she's going to miss the Harry Dick, huh? <laughs> During the meeting, are you ready for this? Yeah. Murphy noted that signs for nearby Hussey Road keep disappearing, too. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So someone's got an intersection of Hussey and Harry Dick. <laughs> yeah, mm. Get up in their house. You can't. You can't make it up. No. It happens all over. People are children. She observed. It, it's probably I, I would steal it, and I'm a 45 year old man. Right. <laughs> I would get my little arthritic bones up there and take one, too. I would, too. Yeah. Council of course we'd go take a hairy dick. Why wouldn't we? (laughs) (laughs) Council initially decided to come up with a short list of three new names in consultation with the residents of Harry Dick Road and eventually settle on one. (laughs) Now it's Biggins Road. (laughs) Now it's Deep Throat Drive. (laughs) That decision came as a surprise to the Dicks. What is the name change, you may ask? Well, they said they weren't consulted and learned about the pending name change in their local newspaper. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Okay. Now they have... It's Johnson now. (laughs) It's now Johnson Drive. It's now Gigantic Johnson Drive. (laughs) Uh, Now they have a new worry. The onerous paperwork... Involved in changing their addresses after living for decades on Harry Dick Drive or Harry Dick Road. <laughs> Look at me jumping the gun. Uh, I thought of all the things that we're going to have to change. Any legal document with our address on it is going to have to be changed, said Lois Dick. An elderly neighbor who rents the third house on the road was also unaware of the pending name change, she said. Dick said she has since contacted the mayor to express their concerns, but was told that leaving the road without a sign is not an option. Murphy declined an interview with CBC, but confirmed the Dicks have since asked that the name remain despite the constant theft. (laughs) Despite the September 5th committee meeting, Murphy acknowledged that while having your road sign stolen several times a year might be a pain, so is changing your address. They will have to change everything. Their driver's license, their health card, the mailing address. They'll have to change things with CRA. It's not as easy as just slapping up a sign that the county makes for us. It's a big process, she told her council colleagues. If it was as simple as just changing a road sign, but it's not. Well, the matter did not arise during a subsequent committee meeting on September 19th, Murphy seemed to indicate at one point that the name change is now on hold. So for now... There's plenty of Harry Dick to go around. Harry Dick's rise again. <laughs> and there you go. That is how we end dumb crime, stupid criminals. They just need to make it out of like cement so it can be a rock hard Harry Dick road. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> criminals still are getting away with getting some Harry Dick. <laughs> <laughs> They're just stealing that hairy dick left and right. Yes, indeed. So that'll do it for Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals, and for True Crime Tuesday today. I want to thank uh, want to thank our guest today, and want to remind you to uh, pick up the book "Monsters on the Loose: The True Story of Three Unsolved Murders in Prohibition Era San Diego." Richard Carrico was our guest today, and uh, the book is is very very good. I want to want to get you guys to get out there and uh, click that link that's in the description of this program and uh, pick up the book. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it'll it'll send you right back to 1931 San Diego. It'll give you an idea of what things were like at uh, in that time. And uh, it's very intriguing, not only the three cases, uh, unsolved cases of those uh, murders, but uh, lots of interesting facts. Lots of the cases themselves are intriguing. And, um, man, just some, uh, I was intrigued the entire time I was reading it. It was just a very, very good book. 
Um, and uh, like Richard said, he's working on a new new book right now that sounds very interesting as well. So we'll have him back on the program. Um, very cool. And again, the most interesting fact he gave to us today that I think, besides the fact that in 1931, $15,000 was the equivalent of $2 million today. Oh, geez. Isn't that something? Yeah. But besides that, the fact that oral copulation can kill you. <laughs> and the fact Harry Dick Road. And the fact that there have been three deaths from it this year. This year? Okay. Yeah. How do you like that? Huh? <laughs> Seriously, I hope one of them took place on Harry Dick Road. <laughs> oh God. You get one of those. That's the last one I'm doing today. That guy right. that guy who wrote me now is throwing things. He's, yeah. he's probably thrown his phone across the room. Rim shots everywhere. Rim shots everywhere. Um, I, I, that's astounding to me, that, that fact right there. Just it is. Three this year already. Three this year already. Three people have died from uh, getting pushed past the gag reflex, as Richard you, put it. Does she, uh, I, that's such an inappropriate question. Never mind. <laughs> I, no, I, I know. I know. But you have to, you just... Don't ask the question and imagine pushing past the gag reflex and then joking to death. Well, I'm not going to do that. No, no, I'm just saying that that's, that's what happens. Well, luckily the women that I'm with, well, Mrs. Bruiser, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> I don't go near the gag reflex. <laughs> so there you go. Tomorrow on the show, Supernatural News. Yes. Lots of fun. Lots of fun. So, what you have planned for the weekend? Training the youth of America in professional wrestling. AMLWrestling.com slash training. Come train with me. Um, we broke the ring over the weekend, which is really, really? really proud of. Yeah, at that Future Star show. Um, the students, man, they worked hard. They worked real hard. Uh, so, we get to learn ring repair tonight at training. <laughs> what part of the ring broke? Uh, a weld underneath, you know, how you have the beams that can sit in. Yeah. So the frame here and they sit inside there. Yeah. Uh, one of the welds for one of those beams snapped. So the ring, it happened with two matches left, but where it snapped, it was still okay to do the show. Okay. But as soon as the show was done, we took it apart. It just, it it weld broke. That's all. So you, you have a welder or you have to go get one? Uh, they have the welder to come weld it okay. and stuff. And that's basically what tonight's going to be. Is, well, he should have already welded it. just putting everything back together. Interesting. Hmm. All right. Which, you know what? That's part of professional wrestling is you got to learn how to maintain a ring. That's right. And set it up and tear it down and, you know, wrestle with broken rings and stuff. And nobody got hurt. show was very successful. Very, very successful. Very proud of every single student that performed. Good. Good, good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're coming a long way. You'll see them on TV soon enough. Interesting. Very good. Very good. Very good. All right. Um, I don't have much. I, I can do my chipmunk update tomorrow. Okay. The boys are back. <laughs> All right. They, they've been hiding for a while. There was some bad weather. The, the weather changed. We went from 80s to 50s and cold and rainy, and they they were hiding for a while, but they're back outside. So Good. Yeah, they came back, so. I was afraid they had gone into torpor early. But nope, they still got to come collect their stuff. Yep, they're, they're back outside. and, and we'll Just make sure it's not wet seeds. 
Right. No, they, they, oof. they didn't eat the wet seeds for a while. They were, in fact, I had, uh, I had one tapping his foot by, by this. Yeah. Yeah. But no, we'll talk more about them tomorrow. They, uh, right. yeah. But, uh, I, uh, I'll talk about an interesting interaction I had with Spud on Sunday. I can share a story about how Talia doesn't like Halloween decorations. Really? You know, I have a friend who has a, a dog who absolutely went nuts at a Halloween decoration. I think yeah. I think dogs know the true meaning of evil. <laughs> Maybe. This is a they do. Scooby-Doo inflatable and a Mickey Mouse inflatable and all that. Not really, really? evil. It's just them standing around a pumpkin. I still think anything that looks somewhat evil, I think they know. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Uh, no, I think they do. I think uh, I think dogs have that idea. Maybe. They, they do. Just, I'll show the story tomorrow what she did. Okay, just on site. We will. Also, um, uh, we'll know fully. I mean, Wednesday we'll talk Ziggy's picks, but uh, another weird week in the NFL. But um, Very weird week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, Wednesday we'll talk uh, Ziggy's picks and, and NFL stuff. Just so people are aware... Uh, with the NFL stuff, it's a psychic dog thing. So it does tie into the paranormal. Because yeah. I've had a few people go, well, what, is, what does the NFL have to do anything with paranormal? And that's why we're talking about... Uh, yeah. We had a story last year about a psychic uh, octopus. Octopus, or, yeah. 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 And, and psychic I, animals. you and I both just loudly thought out loud, I wonder if Ziggy's... And we tried it, and right. she <laughs> impressed the hell out of us. That's right. So that's, it's, it's an ongoing psychic animal experience if i could get my chipmunks to sit down and pick nfl games i'd do it but they <laughs> they barely sit and take treats for me so i can't get them to pick nfl games i actually this last round uh, i should share it tomorrow but i had another friend take ziggy's picks they actually took talia's picks really and and laid some money in vegas and actually won some money really yep so uh talia's actually got a dog treat in the mail coming to her Wow, look yeah. at that. So far, he's doing well. He's got to wait till you know, the Packer game. He'll see for sure. Now, okay, before we leave today, I, I have a bone to pick with your dogs and you. How am I the only, I'm the Minnesota guy. How am I the <laughs> only one who picked the Packers this week? I don't know. I, I just think they're too young to beat Vegas. I think Vegas is going to win. Well, we'll find uh, out. What? We'll find out. We'll, oh, yeah, we will. I mean, yeah. we're, we're recording this on Monday night. By the time this yeah. airs, the game will be over, and either All I right. look stupid by challenging you or, <laughs> or I look like a genius, one or the other. Um, but I'm just going by what's on paper. No, I know. I hear you. On paper, it, it, looks, it looks obvious. Yeah. Um, but I got a feeling, man. I, I, just, I just... It'll be a good a game either way. Well, hopefully hopefully be a good game but we've had a lot of good games this week so hopefully this one yeah but i just i got a feeling <laughs> i, got I a don't feeling. You and know. i love the packers i think it's great and your packers and chiefs are my teams my nfc ifc teams and i'm gonna cheer for the packers but i know nuts to you know nuts to nerds it comes down to the raiders winning i i know bakhtiari is injured and out for the year but um, I yeah, that happens every year. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he hasn't played a full year in, what, three, four years? Yeah, since they signed him, yeah. Yeah, so. Okay, so with that, we're done today. <laughs> we'll see you tomorrow. Supernatural News for Beer City Bruiser. I'm Tim Dennis. Thank you so much for joining us today. We will see you tomorrow 
for the best in paranormal podcasting. And thank you today for joining us for the best in true crime podcasting. This has been True Crime Tuesday.